You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The night of the formal is finally here for Chris, Cindy, and JC. It's going to be the best night of their lives. But tonight is also the night of the creeps. From a world unknown comes a nightmare unimagined. First, they are under you, around you, on you, and then inside you. They get in through your mouth and you walk around while they incubate, even if you're dead. They are a new breed of terror. They are a different kind of horror. Zombies, exploding heads, creepy crawlies. We could have a little problem. The creeps are taking over. Oh, I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. You have never had a night like this. Night of the Creeps. If you scream, you're dead. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back with me this week is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It is always a pleasure. This week we are talking about the 1986 directorial debut of Fred Decker, Night of the Creeps. The film stars Jason Lively as Chris and Steve Marshall as J.C., two hapless college freshmen who accidentally unleash an alien threat upon the world as part of a fraternity prank gone wrong. Of course, we're going to be talking about spoilers in this episode, so if you don't want to know the ending, or endings in this case, of Night of the Creeps, turn off the show, go watch the movie, and come back. We will still be here. Now, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Night of the Creeps, and what did you think? I saw Night of the Creeps when it played theatrically in New York, and uh, I saw it in not quite a Times Square theater, but a theater that was just a little bit north of Times Square. And I saw it, and then basically I thought, oh my God, this is so much frickin' fun. Where did this movie come from? You know, it wasn't what I expected. I, I thought it was going to be, be you know, a slightly more intense horror movie. And to see something that was essentially a a 50s monster movie pastiche that was so smart and so knowing and so much fun was a complete shock to me. And I just, I I think I came out of it walking on air thinking, okay, who can I call when I get home to my phone? Because, of course, we didn't have cell phones then. Uh, And and tell them that, oh, my God, you've got to go and see this movie, Night of the Creeps. It's so much fun. I first saw it on cable back in, I want to say like the late 80s, uh, which means I probably saw the uh, the alternate ending that we'll get to later on the episode. And uh, my first impression of it was just like, I thought it was just like, like an absolute Valentine to monster kids, you know, to, any, to all of us who grew up just loving science fiction and horror. And I, I thought it was tremendous fun. And rewatching it this weekend in preparation for this episode, um, I appreciated it 20 times more, you know, and I liked it as a kid, but I, I really love it now. I just thought, um, like look, what Maitland said is so, it's so smartly written and it has such a great balance of humor, but also there's some, some scenes in it that are, you know, legit, very tense and 
kind of dark. And so I just, I loved the balance. It kind of has something for everybody. I actually only saw this for the first time a couple months ago when Maitland brought it up as far as she wanted to do this on the show. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I've, I've heard of this movie. I remembered the box cover. I mean, the box is fantastic with the, you know, the kind of uh, frat boy wearing the tux and everything with the line of, you know, the good news is your dates are here. The bad news is they're dead. I remember that from working at Blockbuster, but yeah, I just never watched it. And with a name like Night of the Creeps, I was just like, okay, I have no idea what this movie is about other than possibly zombies. And I was like, oh, okay, this, whatever. I'll, I'll catch up with this movie someday. And oh my God, I am so glad that I finally did because it is just tremendous. Yeah, it was so well written and so well put together. I just had such a fun time with this movie. And so now I'm kind of jealous that you guys had this in your lives for all these years. And here I am finally just coming to it, but I'm glad that I finally came to the party. I was like, like, oh my God. God, I had totally forgotten that I'm the person who said that that you should see it. I I don't I don't even remember that conversation. Yep, you were like, "Hey, why don't we do Night of the Creeps for October? I think I can get us Fred Decker." I was like, "Sure, sounds good to me." Yeah, I grew up watching Night of the Comet. I never happened across Night of the Creeps on cable, which is bizarre because I would assume that this had a, a mighty long life on cable, as in especially in the mid to late '80s. Oh, you would think it did, definitely. Although, Night of the Comet, may I say, is also an absolutely terrific movie. I love that picture. I, I can't believe that Night of the Creeps didn't have a total extended cable life because it is, to me, the quintessential. You turn on the, the you, know, you turn on your cable TV at two o'clock in the morning and looking for something to watch, and it's like, oh my god, this movie's this, this movie's total fun. Sure, I'll sit and watch this for twenty minutes, and then you know, an hour later, you're still there. It also kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Return of the Living Dead, as far as the the fun and the zombies, and just the way that it would kind of play with music and everything. I was just like really impressed by it, and and I guess the the one zombie effect in the movie kind of reminded me of the of the zombies from that as well. Not as much as like the Tar Man or something, but just that kind of great animatronic zombie face that we get to see at one point. Oh, absolutely. Well, and you know, actually one parallel I noticed is both films have a really lovable, funny character who ends up having to basically immolate themselves because they are contaminated and they know what they're going to become. I love the openings to this film, the kind of multiple openings that we have. We start off in a spaceship, strangely enough, and we've got some great creature design. I love these alien creatures. They look amazing. I'm not sure, actually, whether they're entirely effects or whether they're kids in suits, but they are really, really effective. I mean, they're just, and, and I just love that they're these little tiny creatures, and yet they're such total commando badasses. It's fabulous. They're stout. They're very sort of like muscular little, you know, little guys. And the subtitles, I mean, how great are those? Well, I want to know when you were watching this with subtitles, because I watched this movie twice for the last two days. And one version I watched had alien subtitles with no English, and the other version had alien subtitles with English. So the first time I watched this, when I watched it a few months ago, and then when I watched it again yesterday... It was the version with no English for the subtitle, so I had no idea what was going on. I thought one of them was in an escape pod and somehow turns into the creeps. So when I finally saw it yesterday, I was just like, oh, it's an experiment. Okay, this makes a lot more sense. Because I was like, how did that little guy turn into all of these space slugs? 
And I'm kind of thinking when I first saw it in Times Square, I don't, I, I don't know whether or not I was smoking pot, but if I wasn't, everybody else in the theater was, so it didn't matter. So it was such a total contact high thing that none of that kind of question ever up, frankly, which was one of the great things about seeing movies in Times Square, because Times Square movies were the home of the contact high. I mean, you went in and it didn't matter whether you were planning to smoke a joint or not. If you sat anywhere in any of those theaters, you were surrounded by people who were smoking major, like, good dope. And, you know, 20 minutes into any given movie, you were probably not in a position that you should be taking your driver's test or filling out an application for a job. You were completely going with the flow. And this movie really brings that back to me. Looking at it now, absolutely dead solid sober, it still feels like, whoa, man, <laughs> this is so like, oh, cool, yeah. I don't remember if my, like, the first time I saw it on TV, if it did. The, the version I watched over the weekend did have English subtitles, so I didn't, yeah, I didn't have any of the confusion. And I sadly didn't have the secondhand high either, so I feel... <laughs> a little jet. I know I'm missing out in, on all these realms. I never saw the movie until recently and I never sat in a theater where I got a contact buzz. Jeez. Seeing a movie in any sort of Arkansas theater, uh, you're not going to get a secondhand high, sadly. That was the beauty of Times Square. It didn't matter what movie you were seeing. You could be seeing anything from a, you know, a horror movie to a, a serious drama to Anything. It didn't matter. Everybody around you was smoking, and you definitely left the theater a little bit buzzed. So it was totally part of the experience. And I, not to sound like you know, the person who's like, oh, man, everything was so much cooler back then. But it really was. It was a, a fun kind of movie-going experience. So we've got the opening with the aliens, and then we kind of jump into same time frame. 1956 is when this alien experiment is unleashed upon the world. And we've got the fairly typical couple going up to, you know, inspiration point, and they're trying to make out and they're being interrupted by of course there's an axe murderer on the loose and this young cop comes over and tries to warn them you know go on home and so i was expecting this to turn into like the uh the the hook hand urban legend you know i was waiting for the hook hand but no it was the the uh, maniac on the loose with it with a hatchet or with an axe so very well shot i love the way that we have these uh the, the everything's done in black and white it just looks really really nice and we get uh, a character, an actor who manages to pull off young Tom Atkins pretty well. I, I was very surprised. I was almost wondering if it was Tom Atkins dubbing his voice because Atkins has such a distinct voice. But I was glad that I was able to tell right away when I knew Atkins was in the film, oh yeah, this guy's going to grow up to be Tom Atkins. I also loved that sequence because having grown up in not only in New York City, but in Manhattan, that particular kind of urban legend story, like the hook hand guy or whatever, was completely alien to me. It, it just had nothing to do with my personal experience. I mean, for me, when I was growing up, when he went out on a date with a guy, you, you took a bus and you went to a pizza parlor and you had some pizza together. There was none of that being in a car or being in a, a deserted place where maybe the hook hand killer might be able to come up to you. So 
there was something really mythopoetic about that sequence for me that was really powerful in a funny way. It, it's really well, Fred Decker manipulates it in a really good way in this movie and makes it feel like it's an archetype, that even if you didn't experience that when you were a young person going out on your first dates with, with guys or girls, it felt like, oh yeah, that was an experience that wasn't my experience, but I completely understand that that was a formative experience for a lot of people. And then oh my God, it all totally goes to hell. Yeah, not only do we have the axe killer on the, the loose breaking out of the local uh, insane asylum, but we also have the experiment that has been jettisoned out of the spaceship and is crashing towards the Earth. So we've got kind of two points of action happening at once, which I really appreciate. We've got the date in the car, and then we've got the guy going out in the woods and trying to find this um, this meteorite that has landed, and it could be anything. We don't necessarily know what's going to be in there once he finds that gets to it. And I love the moment where the guy breaks onto the radio again and says, Another update from the King Newsroom. Police continue the search for a 35-year-old escapee from the Crestridge Mental Institute who, officials confirm, killed four orderlies in a brutal spree early tonight. Crestridge police warn the man is armed with a large fire act and is believed to be moving west on Route 66 toward the Cormon University area. She turns on the headlights and it has Route 66 and <laughs> so-and-so college three miles away. <laughs> well, and the thing that's so beautiful about this opening too, and it kind of sets up for the rest of the film is like, there's all these different elements that I think in lesser hands would have drowned the film. But Decker, like he like masterfully, everything is just so well balanced. You know, it's like the perfect recipe. There's not too much of anything, just, just the right amount. Decker, who had, you know, he'd done student films, but this is his first major motion picture. And he's able to handle these moments, you know, like that cut to, you know, the, the sign and to the, you know, the college three miles away. I mean, just the perfect timing when it comes to that stuff and the way that he's balancing that scene with the guy in the woods going to check out the meteor is just like, okay, yeah, this is, this really works. And he ends the sequence right at the right time as well, because we have again, two culminations of that. We have the boyfriend who finds the, the tube of uh, basically space slugs. And then we've got the killer with the ax coming up and basically beheading the, or at least we assume that he beheads the woman in the car and then cut to 30 years later fraternity row fraternity and sorority row and now we're introduced to the rest of our story it's such a great open because it's just like what the hell happened will we revisit this you know we're left with all of these questions that are going to drive us throughout so much of this movie frankly the fact that decker is so incredibly comfortable with this material and so sophisticated in his handling in it is what makes all of the shout outs to every genre movie that you and I and you have ever seen work in a really organic kind of way. I mean, you know, you could argue that naming every single frickin' character after somebody who is a major horror director, writer, whatever, could be really distracting. But the fact is, it actually isn't. I mean, I think now, even more than when we first saw this movie, or I first saw this movie anyway, having every character named Cronenberg or Raimi or any other number of horror filmmakers who are given a shout-out in this movie could have been hugely distracting, and yet it's not, 
because the really basic skillful filmmaking that drives this movie makes that stuff not irrelevant, but it makes it something that if you were a fan, you say, oh, man, that's cool. She's Cynthia Cronenberg. And then you forget about it. Yeah, I've seen that done in other movies in lesser directors' hands, and it just kind of stops the movie dead sometimes, where it's just like, you know, oh, hey, that's Mr. Carpenter. Pause, pause, pause. You know, like almost a little, like, did you get it? Light comes up in the corner of the screen, you know? But in here, yeah, it's like there's the one moment where one of the cops comes up and almost does like a roll call of the the three main characters' names, full names as well. For the record, this is uh, Cynthia Cronenberg. And we're... uh... Christopher Romero and James Carpenter Hooper. But he just does it so quickly that we're not pausing. We're not, you know, going, oh, God, yeah, I I've, I've saw that one coming. Okay, thanks. <laughs> it just flows so effortlessly. Yeah, you don't feel like, you know, Decker's elbowing you in the ribs, being like, hey, you get it? You get it? You know, it doesn't feel obnoxious. It just feels like, oh, he's one of us. Just like a, a knowing kind of nod to all the monster fans out there, monster kids. Well, what I found hilarious, too, is reading the original screenplay is that the uh, Tom Atkins role, he's uh, Cameron, uh, you know, as in James Cameron in the film, and he's Shane Black in the the screenplay, who is Decker's writing partner for a lot of years. And they just uh, were finishing the the Predator new screenplay for, I think, 2018 or whenever that's supposed to come out. So they had, you know, they've worked on a whole bunch of stuff together, like the the, the, uh, Monster Squad and all of these things. So it would have been hilarious for me in 2016 watching this movie having a character named Shane Black. I thought that would have been pretty great. <laughs> oh, and as I recall, they, they weren't just friends. They were roommates. So they, they shared a, an apartment that they called the Pado Guys. So, yeah, they were very close. And so as soon as they said, you know, Shane Black picks up the phone or whatever, I was just like, whoa, hey, where, where, where is this coming from? It seemed to kind of break the, the fourth wall. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, that's just the character's name. Okay. You know, I was thinking that it was literally Shane Black inside of the film because I know that Black would occasionally – break the fourth wall when he was writing stuff. I seem to remember a line from, I can't remember if it was the long kiss goodnight or what it was, but he, he says something like, you know, we, we open on a mansion, the same kind of mansion that I'm going to buy when I sell this script. And I find the movie is very clever as far as, so we're reintroduced to the boyfriend from the beginning via this fraternity prank that goes horribly wrong because our main character, our main character is kind of unlikable i would say is that fair to say chris who's played by jason lively it's kind of a dweeb and doesn't really take any sort of action and it's really jc who does all of the action taking like chris sees this woman across the the room and he just like falls madly in love with her love at first sight and that's always kind of obnoxious when you've got somebody who's just like oh i think i'm in love with this person that i just laid my eyes on it's like come on dude get a grip but here's jc Going over, finding out her name, doing, you know, like really doing the legwork. Hey, if we're going to uh, get this woman, you know, she's really into fraternity guys, so we're going to have to rush a fraternity. So they end up going into this fraternity, and the frat brothers take a look at these two guys, and, and unfortunately, JC, this handicapped kid, Chris, who just is kind of dweebish, like I said. 
they're like, yeah, okay, well, you do this prank for us, and for sure you can get into this fraternity, knowing full well that there's no way that they're ever going to let these guys inside of the fraternity. It's kind of like, they're not as bad as, like, Flounder and Pinto, but they're up there. Well, in fact, they are, because one of them is, is handicapped, and clearly that makes you not, you know, an A-frack guy. And one of the things that I really like about this movie is that the fact that that character is handicapped is really not a huge issue. It certainly it is an issue in certain scenes, but you never get the feeling that this guy is, oh my God, here's the handicapped guy. He is a character who has some kind of physical disability, who has to use crutches, and yet it has absolutely nothing to do with who he is. And in a movie made in the 80s, any movie, let alone a genre movie, that's a really remarkable thing. I didn't notice it, really, when I saw that movie then, but I look at it now and think, wow, that's an extraordinary piece of writing and an extraordinary piece of filmmaking that doesn't stand out as anything extraordinary. And that's remarkable. For me, like, JC was probably my favorite character. You just really love him. He's funny. You know, he's more of a man of action, certainly, than Chris. You really get kind of attached to JC, which makes, you know, what's going to happen to him later in the film all the more just sort of harrowing. And you're just like, oh, not him. You know, (laughs) you almost like, I mean, Chris, I didn't think Chris was unlikable. I just thought he was just, you know, just kind of this, like... I don't want to say nebbish, but, you know, I mean, yeah, he's just kind of this guy who hasn't really done a lot for himself. He's still kind of growing into who he's going to be, where JC is a fully, almost like this fully formed young person, and he's funny and witty and puts up with Chris. Like, I love the whole, you know, just from the beginning, him being like, you're depressing me. (laughs) Like, he's just like Mm -hmm. calling his buddy out, like, stop it, you're depressing me. (laughs) JC's just, I don't know, he's awesome. I kind of, I, I wish there was like an alternate version, I guess another alternate version where JC lives and um, him and Chris become like a couple. <laughs> 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 though, though, though JC could do better than Chris, the, your first love's always going to be the one where you're like, ah, well, I, I needed to get that out of my system. Hey, fuck you, Chris. Look, every single day, I put up your, with your moaning about what's-her-name and, and how you wish you could fall in love again. But you're too chicken shit to do anything about it. And then the Cynthia girl comes along. Dream girl uh, 2001. And I say to myself, what the hell? I'm sure as hell never going to get late, so I might as well help out my best friend, right? And then you say, JC, help. We got to join the fraternity so she'll give me the time of the day. And I say, what the hell? You got to do it. You got to do it. And what do I do? I bust my ass to help you, and you get chicken shit again. And I push, and I push, and I don't give up. And why? Why? You don't even know. You don't even care. Because it's important to me that you're happy. Is that so crazy? And if we got to act like jerks and get in trouble in order to do that, then what the hell? I mean, it's better than acting like jerks for no reason, right? So, yeah, everything is a joke. It's hilarious, because if you you take it seriously, you just get depressed all the time, like you are. So, fuck you. Yeah, well, fuck you, too. You try it. You'd let me. You'd want me to. You wish. We done. I guess I just still hold something against Jason Lively after having the only National Lampoon's vacation film that I ever saw in theaters be National Lampoon's European vacation. 
I still feel like I'm stuck in that traffic circle. I, I still have a lot of resentment against that movie, so I might be taking it out on uh, the second Rusty Griswold. I, I'm not sure. So apologies to Mr. Lively for, you know, really still having a lot that. Well, but then again, I kind of feel like he should owe me an apology after I sat through Rock and Roll High School forever. So. Oh Lord! Oh, oh, that's bad. That's. Boy, I mean, not like European vacation is, uh, you know, stellar <laughs> by any by any means, but compared to rock and roll high school forever, I mean, it's it's almost good. So they end up going over because where else are they going to go? They're going to go to the uh, the the bodies there, the morgue, I guess, of the school, um, where they narrowly miss running into David Paymer, who is. Uh, <laughs> I was so happy to see young David Paymer. I really didn't think that I, that David Paymer was ever young. I thought that he was always just like 40, 50 years old, Mr. Saturday Night-esque era. You know, I never really saw young David Paymer, so I was glad that he actually existed. It was like seeing a Yeti. Young David Paymer was a beautiful thing to see. I mean, he was actually even a little bit cute. And, you know, not like run across the street cute, but a little bit cute. It was nice to see him. I I actually had to kind of like rewind a little bit because, you know, when I first saw it in the 80s, early 90s, of course, I didn't know, you know, David Paymer wasn't as well known then. I was just like, oh, there's a guy. But yeah, as an adult, I was like, holy shit, (laughs) it's the Paymer. So unfortunately, um, we kind of run into some uh, Chud 2 territory here where uh, Chris and JC defrost uh, the guy from the very beginning of the film who was infected by these space slugs. Um, so it, it's, it's not as bad as defrosting Bud the Chud or anything, but it's still, it's pretty bad because they unwittingly unleash the zombie apocalypse upon the rest of the world. And this is what I found fascinating about the film is that we not only have the space Space slugs, because we, we've talked on the show before about space slugs. We, we just did an episode on The Hidden a few months ago. So we've got these, you know, they're, they're much cuter space slugs. I definitely have to say these. The, so we've got those. But then that they turn people into zombies. It's kind of like a two for one. And I love it that, that we have this whole thing. And not only zombies, but the zombies that infect other people with multiple, multiple space slugs. Because it seems like they go, as far as I know, these slugs go into your mouth, they go up into your brain, they lay eggs, and when they're ready to to hatch, basically your head pops open, and we're off to the races. we got all of these space slugs going everywhere. So it's not just a, a single bite or anything, and these zombies really don't care about biting people, but they definitely care about infecting other people. So it's just a great twist on... You know, at this point, 1986, it's not old hat. It's not like you know, like it is right now, where it's like a new zombie movie comes out every single week, and and like literally every single week it feels like so. But here we've got a twist on the the tradition already in 86 that it was just like, oh wow. And and I guess kind of speaking of Night of the Comet, it was kind of along those lines where it was like those guys, you know, the the ones who weren't necessarily disintegrated by the the uh, comet going overhead turned into kind of zombie-ish things, so they were playing with it as well. But it's interesting that mid-80s are already playing with the zombie legend, the zombie you know tropes, and they're doing it so well, so effectively. I love the slugs. They're, they're so cute. They're just skittering around, running into the grass, hiding behind the bushes. They're adorable. I, I look at them and I, I feel really kind of affectionate toward them, uh, which is clearly not what the movie is asking you to feel because they are, after all, the alien zombie slugs that are going to turn everybody into monsters. But they're just 
kind of sweet, the poor little thing. And <laughs> <laughs> I find somewhere to go and something to do. Yeah, I think the only time I've ever seen slugs this cute was in a Toho movie. Like, the Japanese could make a slug cute. I don't normally find slugs personally that adorable, but these these were cute. And the fact that there's not really, I mean, even though, like, they're, you know, they're a force that needs to be reckoned with, but there's not really, like, they're not really villains. It's just they're, this is what their biology is telling them to do. And, you know, the fascination is just seeing how, like, it affects, you know, everything else in this universe. Well, I have to say, too, they are so well done as far as the effects go. I mean, when they're skittering across the lawn, when they're going across the bathroom floor later on when JC's going to bite it, I mean, they look really good. I, I was amazed to see that the special effects really held up very well. I mean, I, I'm not even sure exactly how they did it, if it was just, you know, things on a piano wire or how it was, but I thought they did a terrific job with it. No, I completely agree. I have no idea how that effect was done, but they do actually look like something organic moving really, really fast. And part of that is terrific editing, I'm sure, because you don't want to linger on them for too long so that people can look at them and and spot the defects in the way they work. But they do actually look like organic things that happen to move really, really fast for slugs, because as most of us know, slugs don't move that fast. They, they slug their way along. Well, look and sound, too. I think the sound design on them are, is terrific, because they really sound like whatever these things are, they are skittering across the floor. Not necessarily on legs, you know, just but right across the floor. And I was just like, ugh. <laughs> I do not want to be in the bathroom. I mean, that's one of the most terrifying scenes in the movie for me, is when JC is just trying to, you know, pinch a loaf, and he's getting attacked by these slugs and it's just like so helpless i mean the guy's already got the crutches and stuff but he's proven himself that he's he's uh, you know more capable of uh, he's not defined by his disability so i'm just like okay yeah he can probably get out of this but no he's stuck on the toilet he's got all these slugs coming after him it's just like oh my god this is a nightmare coming true for this poor guy i felt terrible for him you know when do you feel more vulnerable than when you're in a in a bathroom stall in a bathroom i mean uh, there you are you not only are you half dressed not only are are you in the middle of a bodily function but you're completely isolated from anyone or anything and so the idea that now something's coming to get you is absolutely terrifying it's a really wonderful way of bringing a day-to-day terror into a horror movie setting. It's like, okay, now you're not just in the bathroom, isolated, hoping that your supervisor is not in the bathroom stall next door because that would be really embarrassing. But now there are alien slugs from space coming for you to do God knows what, but you know it's not good. That's a fantastic, fantastic setup. Speaking of that bathroom scene, um, is that I was kind of struck by the graffiti, this is a completely, this is not at all a comment on the atmosphere, <laughs> but I don't know if you guys noticed that, um, I think there's a reference to Monster Squad, which Decker would go on to write and direct, which is also, you know, a, an awesome, awesome film. But also, I was perplexed by the uh, graffiti of Striper Rules. 
I believe. Stri- yeah, Striper rules. I even have it in my notes because I was like Striper. I guess I had to like you mean, look like this. Worst hand ever. Oh my god! I know. I mean, like you know, they could have at least had a reference to you know Pretty Boy Floyd or Tough or I mean, their their hair bands a little more worthy than the uh, the epic Christian rock band with the uh, Bumblebee color scheme of Striper. But uh, <laughs> I guess like I think one of the makeup girls was dating Michael Sweet, who was the lead singer. I actually had to look this up because I was like, Striper? I'm like, who who would ever write Striper graffiti? I mean, that would I was <laughs> I was I was like, that is as terrifying as the slugs. I'm like, I'd almost rather deal with the slugs. The alien slugs than a striper fan who is so passionate that they have to write it in a in a men's room. I have never been in a toilet where there was striper rules graffiti, and I am really glad of that. Yeah, and I can't picture any man doing that. <laughs> I think that was the thing that also perplexed me because I'm like, maybe there was some. Well, obviously there was a girl who was smitten. I could see like maybe some 14 year old girl who's like trying to be Christian, but she's like, but they're really cute, and my parents will let me listen to them because they won't let me listen to Motley Crue. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a college aged man or older being like, dude, fucking striper. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna. Yeah, this. you're like, dude, fucking striper. Seriously. Yeah, that's the guy you have a blanket party with. You know, you you do a code red on him. That should have been a deleted scene. The, you know, the, the musical references in this film, I was so, like, struck by both the use, like, the pop music use. Because, I mean, like, you have, like, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, you know, for the 50 Secrets and that. And they that song in particular returns later on towards the towards the end of the film in a really cool way. But also, like, there's two Stan Ridgway songs, not just one. But too, I was really, I thought that was, as somebody who's like a Wall of Voodoo fan, I was like, frat boys listening to Stan Ridgeway. Oh, that's <laughs> completely awesome. It, it, it is awesome. Those guys are too, I mean, but they're so, they're chodes. I mean, guys like that were listening to, I don't know, probably Striper, I don't know, Michael Bolton's rock album. That's what I imagine. Like in Back to School. Yeah, they were not listening to Mexican radio. Oh my god, no. no. They certainly were listening to solo era uh, <laughs> Stan Ridgeway. I mean, that's uh so I thought but I was like, Oh, that's cool, Stan Ridgeway got some money for it, so well, it feels almost like another tie to uh, The Hidden, as far as, like, because Stan Ridgeway, if memory serves, he was on IRS, as was Jane Wheatland. I think I heard a Jane Wheatland song in there. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of, like, IRS crossover, you know, like, here, just here's our catalog. Writes free music. Here you go. Pick what you want, and, and tr- we'll try to bolster the soundtrack with these guys. So that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, IRS did that a lot in the 80s. Um, and yes, you did indeed. I think it was Blue Cheer, I want to say. That was the Jane Wheatland song. I could be wrong on that. But there is also a police poster in the film. And, of course, that being the uh, major breadwinners. And, uh, of course, Stuart Copeland's brother, Miles Copeland ran irs records but also i thought this the soundtrack itself the score uh by uh barry uh diverzon i hope i'm saying his name right i thought i thought his score was excellent i really enjoyed it oh he always does such a good job i mean of course whenever i see his name i immediately think of the warriors uh yeah he did a terrific job with this though there's one musical cue in the film where the music goes da-da kind of like that <laughs> into something else and it sounded like that like your download is done Windows sound, you know? (laughs) 
I don't know. As soon as I heard, I was just like, "Oh fuck, what's going on?" Like I like looked at my computer. I was like, "Did something happen? What is happening?" You know, and and then it came up again during the end credits. I was like, "Oh, okay, all right. Now I'm 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 good. Now I understand. <laughs> Nothing, no downloads completed or anything." So uh, one thing is like he did the score for the ninth configuration, which also had Tom Atkins in it. So yeah, we got to talk about Tom Atkins in this movie. God, he is amazing. I've seen Tom Atkins in a lot of movies, and I have to say that this one stands out as being one of his best performances ever. And I thought that he was just amazing in this film. So good. Like, everything that Tom Atkins can bring to a movie, he brought in spades, man. He was great. I'm not even sure if this is an exceptional Tom Atkins performance as much as it is a movie in which he is given room to be Tom Atkins. You know, I mean... In you know, in most movies that you see him in, he has a very small parts, or if he has a larger part, he has only small moments in which to express his Tom Atkinsness. But here, he is absolutely given every moment that he's on screen to do what he does, and it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I love him in it. I love him, and I love him in it. I read that that bit where he stops and smells that rose was him, like, you know, hey, I want to do this kind of thing. So perfect. So perfect. I love it. And then that that rose comes back later on after the, the, the frat house or the sorority house explodes. It's like, oh, that is so nice. That was just lovely. But him as this hard-boiled detective and just the way that he answers the phone, the way that he talks to people, but especially the way he answers the phone... <laughs> Thrill me. Detective Cameron? No. Bozo the Clown. God, I absolutely loved him in this. He brought what I like to call a, a real sense of testicular fortitude to this role. <laughs> like, he just, he he brought it. I think the only, the only false note, and this isn't his fault, is I feel like the whiskey he was drinking should have been Old Crow. I feel like this, this <laughs> is a real world-weary guy, you know? And he's smoking, he's drinking, he's falling asleep you know, it is it is recliner, and he's got all these great pulp novels. A man like that needs old crow. And I can agree with you there. I actually have an old crow, uh, you know, bar crow sitting about ten feet away from me. All it needs is old crow. Oh my god, that is that is amazing that you have that in your vicinity. I uh, that crow is so great. <laughs> <laughs> That's old crow should be put in movies more often. I think there's a, a such a ripe chance for product placement. One of the things that I like about his character is that we get to see his entire arc. You know, we get to to know the character back in that 50s scene. We return to him in that 50s scene, and and I love the way that they kind of reintroduce him. You know, as the young cop, and then kind of turning into the older version of Atkins. And we get to know his whole history as far as him joining the police force, you know, losing his girl and all this kind of stuff. And we even have like later on in the sorority house, he looks up and he sees a picture of his girl and it just, oh my God, I love it. I just love it. And then just the way that he handles everybody else in the movie, he just walks through this film like he he owns it. He owns this whole movie. I mean, to the point where he's even asking, what is this, a homicide or a bad B movie? 
this guy is amazing. And in, in the interrogation of, of Chris and JC, when he uh, comes in, immediately starts calling him Spanky and Alfalfa. And then later on, after JC is dead and, and Chris comes back in, and he's just like, Alfalfa's dead. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good. I love I love how he just like even in the deleted scenes, which I know we'll get to in a little bit, just I all, all of his deleted scenes, especially him talking with his uh, fellow, you know, co-workers at the department, I just thought it was just, you know, I can see why they got cut because it doesn't really add a whole lot, but uh but it was so perfect. Like you could watch just like 3 hours of him quipping. Why you to do me a big favor? Next time you call me in the middle of the night about two dead bodies and would I come down to the campus lab and check it out, I want you to say it exactly like this. Detective Cameron, this is Ramey. There are two dead bodies. Would you come down to the campus lab and check it out? You think you can handle that? Yes, sir. Detective Cameron, uh, this is Ramey. There are two dead bodies and uh, would you come down Wonderful. to the Med center and check it out? His confession to how he killed the ex-murderer, just that dialogue that he has, that is such a beautifully written speech, and I love the reaction. I mean, that is one moment where I I have to say that that uh, Chris, Jason Lively, is doing a tremendous job where he's reacting to Atkins as, as Cameron, laying out everything that happened and the way that he took the law into his own hands and killed this axe murderer and buried him behind the house mothers <laughs> in her yard. Look, detective, now I don't mean to be rude or anything, but other than just kind of wanting to confess to a murder, is there a point to this story? Spanky. That's exactly what I'm trying to figure out. And then that also brings us to a terrific moment, too, where, again, kind of subverting the zombie genre or subgenre is when we have the the axe murderer, the corpse of the axe murderer coming back. And I'm just like, what the hell is this? It was like a third monster almost showed up inside of this movie. It was like, well, we've got space aliens and then we've got slugs and now we've got and, and, and we've got, you know, zombies from this and now we've got this reanimated corpse from 30 years ago. What the hell is this thing? And I, I thought that they handled it really well. Of course, it's kind of like being powered by the space slugs, but just that was terrific to see that. No, I, th- I think this movie is, on the one hand, an overstuffed cornucopia, and yet it never really overflows. It, it's, it's a movie that you could look at in terms of its individual parts and say, Okay, that really is too much. You need to dial that back. <laughs> and yet, all of it in context works incredibly well. And you can go back and look at it and try to pick it apart. And the fact is, oh, sure, I suppose you can think of minor quibbles. But the fact is, it all works incredibly well. And you know, kudos to Fred Decker for pulling all that stuff together in a very low-budget movie. That I, I, don't, I don't even know what the shooting schedule was, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't more than a month, and it was probably less. It, it's, it's an awesome achievement. 
When I like that too, this whole reanimation of the ex-murderer kind of sets us up for one of the endings and really kind of lets us know that these space slugs aren't just willing to go to the living, that they're able to reanimate the dead as well. So again, kind of a, a nice play on the zombies, you know, because there's always the idea of in so many zombie films is that, you know, the bite turns the you know the the living person into the dead person and then into the zombie uh, and uh, but then there's also the idea of the dead actually crawling up from under the ground and then attacking the living it seems anymore that the the easy way out is to just have a, a body that's somehow gets exposed to something you know again i'm thinking of return of the living dead and then that is what kind of starts it off as opposed to bodies under the ground coming up and, and going, which I know also return, um, return of the living dead has, but just that whole idea of like, okay, how far does this go? You know, is it the recently dead or is it the long-term dead? And this kind of presents that idea of it could be the long-term dead as well. I loved how the axe murderer was handled, especially because there, there are certain things that pop up throughout the film that kind of are nice sort of circular, kind of reoccurrencing like smoke gets in your eyes the you know the rose even though that was i don't know ad-libbed and um with the ex-murder because you know the you see like that dream that cameron has early on in the film and the ex-murder turns around in his dream and is all messed up looking like a zombie and then the dream comes true or the nightmare i should say and then of course the original ending of the film uh is a nice sort of circular loop to kind of how the film starts off though sadly we kind of lose that with the the main version but uh but yeah and just the the effects i know we've talked about how great the effects were but i just loved the axe murderer's face like the decomposition and everything it was just incredibly striking looking I have to say, I was so happy to see Dick Miller show up. For some reason, I didn't see that he was in the movie until he showed up. And I was like, oh, my God. And then that he's playing a character named Walt. And I can only assume that his last name is Paisley, which, again, is a really nice nod. You know, that's the moment where I'm just like, ah, that's the beautiful nod to the old, you know, the old films is to have Dick Miller there show up as Walter Paisley, this is fantastic. And that whole scene is great, too, especially when he's just like, I'm going to have to requisition a flamethrower. And just their camaraderie and the way they're laughing about it and everything. This is great. No, I completely agree. I mean, this is a movie that absolutely acknowledges all of its roots right back to the Roger Corman Teenagers and Monsters movies that he was doing in the late 1950s and early 60s. And yet it doesn't feel like a movie that uh, doesn't resonate in the 80s or even now, frankly. I mean, looking at it now, I, I, I didn't feel like, oh, wow, this is a kind of an interesting movie that plays with a lot of old archetypes. I, I looked at it and thought, wow, this is a really fun movie. And I totally know where all this stuff is coming from because I'm old enough to have seen all of the movies that it is drawing on. But it was completely fun from beginning to end. And I think that that's a remarkable balancing act for any filmmaker to pull off. So I came away from it saying, wow, Fred Decker, you did a nice piece of work there. Dick Miller is always, I mean, anytime he pops up at anything, it always feels just like the universe kind of loves you a little bit. He's just, you know, I'm always like, oh, yay, it's Dick Miller. And having him uh, pop up was so great. And another actor I was really happy to see, even though this wasn't really done, I think, for any referential purposes, but uh, Robert Kerman 
pops up as one of the you know cops towards the end of the film and of course a lot of people probably are familiar with him for his starring role in Cannibal Holocaust and of course Eaten Alive and he also did a lot of um, really great work in classic adult films under the name Arbola so uh, like Amanda by Night's a great one and you know a lot of great films not Debbie Does Dallas though that film's terrible and I really do not recommend anybody see it <laughs> Don't see it, kids. But uh, but yeah, I've always Robert Kerman's always a, a welcome sight to me. He's a great actor. Well, if memory serves, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think he was even in Scent of Heather, wasn't he? Uh, he was. Yeah, he did a lot of work with Veronica Hart. Like they they were kind of sort of the uh, uh, Tracy and Hepburn of classic of classic adult films for a, a, a tiny handful of years. They were great together, though. Two two really really good actors. Now, I could be putting down a movie that I really should revisit, but I was thinking that it's funny that here we have Decker playing around with all of these older tropes and really doing a great job and, and you know paying homage to the older films and while creating something new. And this was the same year that Invaders from Mars, the Toby Hooper film, came out. And I just remember absolutely hating that film. Is that any, Does anybody else like that movie, or am I just uh, – was it – that I was expecting Tracy Lords to get naked and she didn't. I mean, I only remember bad things about that movie. Well, I remember almost nothing of Invaders from Mars, which I think is a statement in and of itself. I, I didn't hate that movie, but it was a movie that made pretty much no impression on me. And I was certainly primed to be interested in it and to give it a fair shake. And I saw it and just came away thinking, uh, yeah, whatever, I'm going to go get a burger and a Coke around the corner because this movie did absolutely nothing for me. I, You know what? I've never actually seen <laughs> seen it. I remember, I remember seeing it uh, getting reviewed when I was a kid. Like, I remember seeing stills from it. And I, it's not that I was ever opposed to seeing it because, you know, I loved Toby Hooper and I still love, I mean, Eaton, actually his Eaton Alive, which is not the one for Robert Kerman, his Eaton Alive is uh, one of my favorite horror films ever. It's uh, a huge film dear to my heart. I never, I've never, I guess I just never felt, maybe there's a reason I've never felt pulled to go seek it out. I saw the original, you know, years ago, of course. Um, but yeah, so um, I'm not really feeling eager to check it out from what you two are telling me. <laughs> Well, hopefully we're not receiving angry tweets right now by, you know, Toby Hooper apologists like, this was one of the best movies ever made. This is even better than Life Force. Oh, come on. That's, I mean, I haven't even seen it, you know, I'm like, there's no way it's better than Life Force. No. <laughs> and we just pranked Oh my God, I actually found a set of slides of myself in front of a, a Life Force poster wearing a leather jacket in, I don't know, maybe, I guess that was the early 80s. And, and looking at, first of all, thinking, I don't look great, and second of all, thinking, why am I in front of a Life Force poster? What, what was I thinking? Well, at least it wasn't European vacation. So it could have been worse. Right. It was not that. No, <laughs> and that would have been well, I want to kind of take us into the climax of the film, as far as the whole assault on the uh, sorority. So many good lines. Again, that's where the poster line of, you know, good news is your dates are here, bad news is they're dead. I was surprised that that was actually a, mo a line in the movie. So I was really excited when that actually happened because so many times the line on the poster is great, but it has nothing to do with the movie. But there it was. And I love the camera work in this. I love there's a moment where Atkins is, it almost seems like he's spinning around on a platform or something and just taking out all of these zombies. And I also love Cynthia, who we've, 
I don't even know if we've mentioned Cynthia at all. Cynthia is the love interest of of Chris, and her and Chris out taking care of these zombies in the front yard of the sorority house. Probably one of the most ass-kicking scenes of, of a female protagonist that I've seen in a long time, other than perhaps Night of the Comet, which keeps coming up in this discussion. Just great to see her laying waste especially to all of these frat guys. I love that the, the really, when you come down to it, the creeps of this movie and the creeps of the title seem to be these frat guys. And really they're the ones who seem to be the most dangerous. They're the ones who are kind of, you know, attacking the, the house earlier on in the film. And here they are on Moss, you know, coming after their bus has been infiltrated by these space lugs all coming to the sorority. Here we are to pick up our dates and, you know, who knows what they have on their, their bug infested minds, but just seeing those two take out all these guys on the outside while Atkins is taking care of people on the inside. Fantastic. What a great way to culminate all of the action of this film. I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. Oh my God, I love that scene so much. And a big part of it is that, yes, I love that the Bradster and all of the other frat boys, you know, are revealed for exactly what they are, that they're undead, horrible monsters, and every one of those girls is too good for them. So the idea that, yeah, you know, their dates are there and they're dead is so completely perfect. I remember seeing that movie in Times Square hearing that line and thinking that is the perfect line. I can't imagine who could have written it better. It is flawless and it has stayed with me all these years later. Although of course that doesn't count for much now because you see it written all the time. But I walked out of that theater thinking I've just heard the best Times Square B movie line ever. The thing with Cynthia, you know, when she's initially dating the Brad, God, and any asshole that puts the Bradster on his car is just asking to be, in, you know, infected with an alien slug. I mean, if only that could happen in real life, you know, it's kind of like poetic justice. But, like, I love, because in the beginning of the film, she's kind of likable, but seems almost sort of like your generic pretty girl who's dating, you know, dating kind of this, this dick. But then, like, when he, like, trips JC, she ends up giving him the finger, you're like, oh, wait a minute. This girl's all right. Like, she's cool. <laughs> you know? And then you just see her kind of develop more and more as a character. And it's, you know, even before she goes into total ass-kicking mode, it's like, no, she's no, she's really smart. And she's got something else on the ball than just being your kind of uh, average, nice, cute girl that the hero needs to, you know, make out with at the end. And she, yeah, she comes into her own as a character as we go through this. I mean, it might have been better had she not told the one girl that she could keep her brains in the basement, but it is a good way to kind of capture all the space slugs. If they're if they're attracted to brains, it's a good way to get them all in one place. Just that shot of when they go in the basement and Cameron, like he's got that tape over his mouth. Oh, I love it. I love it. Just because it, it, it startles you at first and then you see that it's him and he's got the tape and I was just like, ah, oh, oh, that's awesome. That's such a cool move. And just, you know, one of like 11 things to point out of just how smart, like this is just such a beautifully written, smart film. And it takes a lot of like, it does take some chances, like with the whole, you know, when 
Cameron's going to have to go and ask Kikimoto and, and help save the day. I mean, like in his apartment, there's that whole shot of him turning off the oven, which I'm assuming means he was about to gas himself. That's what I was thinking too. Either that or he's going to blow up the whole place. I wasn't sure which. <laughs> but it's it could be one or the other, but it did seem I'm like, oh, that's kind of dark. Good. I like it when a, when a film can balance humor and then just throw in something where you're like, oh, shit, that's that's a little disturbing yeah that's a that's to me a mark of a a filmmaker who kind of respects you i like this movie despite myself because my college experience was as alien from the experience that you see in this and many many other movies of this period um not just movies made in the 80s and set in the 50s but movies made in the 80s and set in the 80s as you can imagine because I grew up in, in Manhattan. I went to, um, you know, I, I went to City University of New York and then to Columbia. I never had a, a campus experience. I never had a sorority experience. All of that stuff to me was uh, like some kind of thing that I only ever saw in movies or read about in books and had absolutely no reality to me. And I think that this movie handled that material in a way that made it actually feel compelling to me, despite the fact that I had absolutely no real-life experience to connect it to. And I I give it points for that. I think that's a beautiful point about it, because I didn't even think about that. But as you were talking about that, I mean, yeah, I mean, my when I went to college, I I basically, you know, I, I did nothing as far as extracurricular stuff other than some theater stuff, which is totally what you do when you're an outcast and artsy, I think, is you, you'll, you'll end up doing, like, theater kind of geekery, and uh, you like Cynthia, and you like you like her sorority sisters, and um, that's not something I'm always used to, to feeling when I'm watching films, you know, especially from the 80s, set in that, where it's usually just like, oh, God, a lot of these girls are brain dead, and instead, it's like, you know, everybody's handled really well. Well, I rushed Phi Kappa Delta all the way, and so... <laughs> You're, I can't even. I can't even go on with that one. No, sorry. You're a delt man. <laughs> sure. Deltoid. A deltoid. <laughs> Just call me Mister Deltoid. I am going to call you that from now on. Uh, Alec, boy, awake at last. Yes. I met your mother on the way to work. Yes. She says something about a pain somewhere. Hence, not at school. Yes. So the slugs are destroyed, or at least we think that they are. Everything is is back to quote unquote normal. Uh, at least again, we think that they are. But uh, there are multiple versions of the ending of this film, and and neither of them really wrap stuff up in a very tidy way, which is is the perfect way for a movie like this to end. I think so. I wanted to talk about the multiple endings, and there might be more out there. I'm not exactly sure what all the endings are, and it was tough for me to find like which one is the TV version, which one is the one that played theatrically, which one was on home video, which one is now on the director's cut of the DVD. So I'm not exactly sure. So I'm not going to say this was this version, this was this version, because they all just seem to kind of like, depending on what source you read, it seemed very confusing. So I know that there's a version where Cameron is still alive and he's a smoking husk, basically, walking down the street, smoking a cigarette, uh, which I think he eventually like brings inside of his mouth, and he collapses onto the ground, and all of these space slugs 
go out of his his brain and they take off and they go to the local cemetery and we have the the slugs getting into the cemetery now i think some versions might end with that shot of the cemetery sign so we know we're kind of fucked when it comes to that there's another version where we go inside of the cemetery and we see the spaceship from the very beginning of the film come back and it's got spotlights and it's kind of shining the spotlights around like as if it were looking for the space slugs so i guess that's the most hopeful ending that we have and then there's another ending, which is the there's a dog that we've been seeing throughout the movie. Now, I haven't mentioned the dog at all. I haven't mentioned the dead cat. There's a lot of stuff that we haven't talked about when it comes to this film. But there's a dog that we see kind of hanging around, and we know pretty much anybody would know that this dog is infected. And at the very end of one of the versions, we have... Chris and Cynthia, and they're kind of exchanging some lovey-dovey dialogue, and we go down to the dog, and a space slug just jumps out of its mouth right at the camera, cut, roll credits. The thing that I remember is, I guess, the ending on the DVD version I have, which is the spaceship ending. So, to me, that that is the ending that's familiar to me. I don't remember which ending I, I initially saw when I first saw it either. Um, the the main one I saw over the weekend was the jump scare with the slide coming towards the camera. Um, I did, uh, I did see on YouTube though, the one with the spaceship, which I think is the best. Honestly, I kind of like, I mean, to me that kind of like brings it back to the beginning in a way with the aliens. That would be my favorite for the money, but the, uh, the official one I saw was the, the jump scare. I wonder which iteration the DDD I have is because it definitely ends just with the spaceship hovering. In the original screenplay, it ends just with the exterior quieter street low angle as the creeps slither and shoot in a particular direction under a gate, a sign, and we pan up to the sign and it reads Crestwood Cemetery. And we pan up further to show the cemetery rolling hills and trees bathed in a blue glow of the bright full moon and tombstones, lots and lots of tombstones, cut to black, and credits are accompanied by a bitchin' 50s rock and roll love song. So no spaceship in that version, and just the ending at the cemetery and showing us that the creeps are going to infest these dead bodies. So... It's interesting to see the different ways that this could be handled. Heather, I think that you said the spaceship one brings it back to the beginning, and I think that I agree with that, that it, there are so many circular patterns in the film that it, it would be nice to bring back that spaceship at the end. Yeah, it just, I don't know, to me, it was like when I saw that one, I'm like, that makes sense. I mean, the jump scare one kind of did, but it almost, that, that move felt a little bit like, oh, of course, you know, we're having right. the spaceship... And having, you know, this whole notion of being like, oh, nope, it's not over. <laughs> they're still they're still loose, and now they're in the cemetery, so it's going to get real. It's a great film either way. I mean, you know, which none of these endings certainly, I think, you know, make it a lesser, a lesser work by any means. That ending is so much like the blob. You know, all you need is the great big question mark with the dot on the screen. It's mm. like, oh, the end, or... Here's the spaceship hovering, you know, over whatever, filled with, with slugs and little weird alien guys that we don't even really know what they are, but we saw them, so we know they're there. 
you know, it, it's a perfect kind of 1950s monster movie ending, and certainly Night of the Creeps is deeply, deeply indebted to 1950s horror movies. The screenplay is so well-written, as we can expect that it was well-written, because we've talked about what a great writer Decker is. And I have to say that he did a great job of cutting down his own writing. You know, there's the, the original screenplay is 112 pages, the first draft of it. And the movie's, what, 90 minutes, maybe 89 minutes? So he cut out a, a fair deal of it, uh, 12, 13 minutes of, of screen time. So, And what he cut out was was great stuff that he cut out. Heather and I talked a little bit before the recording that we were going to do some dialogue at the very end, but he cut that out. There was connector scenes as far as what happened to the kid who first got infected, you know, out on the route 66, you know, how did he get from that position into being in the cryo chamber in the college? You know, so there, there are all these little scenes here and there that kind of take us from one place to another, but we don't need those. You know, we, it's better to have the mystery as far as how did this kid get from one you know, point A to point B and be in this cryo chamber for 30 years. We don't need to have all that explanation. It just is. And it's just a great, sci-fi movie kind of thing. Here's a guy in a cryo chamber. You don't know why he's there. Hey, he looks like a corpse. Let's steal him. So there's a lot of great little moments that he was able to sever from his own screenplay, which I think takes a lot, especially for a first-time writer-director who's probably, you know, I would think that the temptation would be to fall in love with your own stuff and not want to lose a single syllable of any of it. Because there are a lot of scenes, I was actually reading the screenplay while I was watching the film, and things like, uh, there's a, a speech that JC gives talking to Chris towards the beginning of the film where he's talking about kind of how he's tired of, of Chris's antics, especially this whole falling in love at first sight and, you know, not being able to get over his last girlfriend and stuff. And it's almost verbatim as far as what's on the page, as far as what's on the screen. And I thought that they, he did a terrific job adapting himself and being able to bring all of the energy from the screenplay to the screen. It blows my mind that this was his first feature. Like, it's so tight. That's the thing that kind of floored me watching it the whole, you know, especially revisiting watching it. It was just like, I was like, my God, this, everything is stitched together so seamlessly. It's, you know, it's brilliant. And yeah, I mean, as a writer, it is, I've, I've never I've finished a screenplay, but even with like article writing, I mean, yeah, it's easy to get attached to something where you're like, I have to cut it. No, you know, <laughs> not my baby. And, you know, if you can self edit yourself and be that just succinct and perfect about it, then, I mean, you got the goods for sure. This movie is so clean and so tight and so beautifully written that it is really remarkable, especially for a first-time filmmaker. Every single thing that you need to know is in there, and nothing that you don't need to know is in there. And that's not as easy as it sounds to do. It is, in fact, quite difficult to make that kind of cut. And it's, it is a beautiful, beautiful piece of screenwriting. And, you know, often when people talk about beautiful pieces of screenwriting, they're talking about things like La Ventura. But <laughs> Night of the Creep is a stunning piece of film writing. It really is. Unfortunately, he shot a lot of the scenes that were cut. 
So he was able to make those editorial decisions afterwards. So there are versions out there. I mean, there's a whole, you know, on the, on the DVD, the deleted scenes, you can find a lot of them on YouTube. I know there used to be a torrent site that I really loved that is kind of gone now as of a few weeks ago. And they had the full TV version, which has all the deleted scenes put in there. So kind of like a, I know it's a TV edit, but it's almost a fan edit to put everything inside of the, uh, the, the final movie. So yeah, it's great to see these things. And I'm, I'm, I can understand why he cut some of it, but to your point, Heather, from earlier, I could just watch Tom Atkins all day long. You could just take all of those extras and just put them right back in as far as the, the all the deleted scenes, everything that he does. I'm just – I'm right there. I'll watch whatever. Oh, God. Just put on a loop. <laughs> I, know, I know. I like to think there's like a whole hour of him at like a diner. You know, just like – you know, because you know, you know how he'd interact with the waitresses would be just like – just beyond oh my god it would be it'd be so good yeah i could i could easily watch the uh, uh berlin alexander platz uh <laughs> version of this with with just tom atkins yeah he's fantastic all right we are going to take a break and we are going to play a pair of interviews the first is with detective cameron himself tom atkins and the second is with director and writer fred decker and we'll be back with those right after these brief messages It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Let me recommend founditemclothing.com for the best way you can get your geek on. Found Item Clothing has everything to proudly display your nerd love from Star Wars to Star Trek from TMNT to BTTF. From S to WXL. And with Halloween right around the corner, Found Item Clothing has a wider range of costumes, from Snake Plissken to Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude and everything in between. And everything in between. Visit founditemclothing.com today. It's too late. I 
I understand that Night of the Creeps is one of your favorites. Night of the Creeps is my favorite. Well, it's a favorite that I ever made. Uh, my favorite is Casablanca. Casablanca, yeah, with uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Ingrid Bergman and the gang, Claude Rains. And I'm shocked, shocked to find there's gambling going on in this establishment. You're winning, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Yeah, that's right. That's what he <laughs> and handed him the money. I love that. Yeah, God, I just love that movie. And I, I love Night of the Creeps. Yeah, it was, it was my favorite. God, we had more fun making that than than anything by far. It feels like such a fun movie. Well, it's a fun movie to watch. So I'm glad to hear that it was fun behind the scenes as well. Oh yeah. Well, we shot down there in. Um, you know, below L.A. at the USC campus or UCLA can, I don't know what the hell. I think it was USC. So right below uh, L.A., down near the convention center and train station and all that shit, I think. And anyway, right on the campus, surrounded by a lot of gorgeous young co-eds, more appropriate for the kids in the movie than me. But we just had a great time, and I had all the all the best lines I've ever had in any movie. Thrill me, it's Miller time, creepy crawlies, zombies, exploding heads, a date for the prom. It's classic, Spanky. What is this, a cryogenic lab, or am I walking into the middle of a bad B movie? I mean, I, you can't beat that stuff. It was... Just great. Yeah. 30 years. I can't believe it's 30 years ago we made that. It still feels fresh, especially with all the zombie movies that are out there today. It still feels like it's saying something new. Yeah. I was curious, how did you get into the business anyway? Out out of Pittsburgh here, where I, uh, my hometown, where I grew up, I um, I got out of high school in the 50s, never had any interest whatsoever in theaters stage or anything, any of that. And worked for a year, went to the Navy, came out of the Navy, went to Duquesne University because I I was an enlisted man in the Navy and I thought, God damn, the officers lived great and I lived like a an enlisted man. I'm, only because they went to college and I thought, I'm going. So I went to uh, Duquesne University and was majoring in journalism, got dating a girl who was involved with the Red Maskers, an extracurricular theater group activity at the uh, the school. And I I didn't feel like I was getting my fair share of her time. She was always at the theater, putzing around, rehearsing, farting, and playing around and and she said well come on over you know get involved in that and we'll be together more and i did and i i just i loved it i really really liked it did a bunch of plays uh, william saroyan plays and the time of your life and talking to you hello out there and uh, stanley and uh, streetcar named desire and um a Gorky play. We did really we did great shit. 
really good stuff. I didn't realize how good until I moved to New York and saw some off-Broadway stuff, and I thought, hell, we were doing this quality work there at Duquesne. Because the guy who ran it, Sam Melly, bless his soul, he's long dead, but he um, he came out of Carnegie Tech back in the 60s, and um, I, I don't know if he was in the, maybe in the Korean War, I'm not sure. He ran our theater group, but he was a graduate of a, I think, master's degree in theater from Carnegie Tech, and he had... Uh, an arrangement with them where he would get guys working on their masters to come over and design the sets for our productions and build them. And, you know, and then they got uh, credit at uh, Carnegie tech for, for that. And uh, same with lights, costumes. So they were, they were pretty extraordinary. The, uh, the productions and the acting wasn't bad. And I thought, well, I, I could work at the paper. I had a job at the Post-Gazette, Press Post-Gazette in the uh, advertising department while I was going to school. And I thought I could work for the paper, but I think I want to go to New York and be an actor. And that's what I did. I went up there and uh, went to the American Academy for a year and got an agent and got the first job I auditioned for a Broadway play. And I've worked ever since, pretty much. I mean, you know, like any working actor, I'm not a star, but like any working actor, you spend a lot of time in between jobs, but, but I've always been able to make a decent living at it since 1967. I was always so happy whenever you would show up in the Rockford Files. Me too. Me too. I I always regret not doing more of them, but I got a a series of my own where I was uh, in Rockford. I was only a recurring and would show up every once in a while and would alternate with uh, Jim Luisi, who played Chapman and I played Deal, Tenant Alex Deal. But then uh, Serpico came up. Uh, and David Burney uh, was hired as Serpico, and they hired me to play as uh, lieutenant boss. And God knows I played a lot of cops and a lot of bad guys. Seldom a brain surgeon. Never. Today, you, you see people doing, you know, different different characters on two or three different series. And, but back then, if you... If you were on one, you couldn't be on another one, you know, at the same time. I don't know why, but um, I'm sorry I ever left to do Serpico because I enjoyed Rockford a lot more. And it was a way, way better show. Jimmy Garner was probably the best actor I've ever worked with in, in my life and the best guy. Terrific guy. And Johnny Cazal was also... a terrific uh, friend and a good guy and a, and a, a wonderful, wonderful actor who died way too young. Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Like, every movie he was ever in was nominated for Best Picture or something? I know. I, ju- I just realized that. Someone pointed that out to me this, uh, I think it was just this past year or last year, but recently. Yeah, I, ne- I didn't 
I never really thought about it. But yeah, I think he did five and they were all nominated. Four or five. Not not that many. And he he died. The Two Godfathers, The Conversation, Deer Hunter, and Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, you can't get much better than that. Yeah, yeah. He would have. He would have gotten much better than that had he lived longer, but yeah. Can you tell me, what was it like working on the ninth configuration? Uh, you know, my um, nephew, I love living back here in the Pittsburgh area. I live south of Pittsburgh, and where I grew up in my hometown. I lived in New York eight years in L.A., about 14, 15, and then moved back here and have a whole a new life. And my uh, nephew, David, who just turned 50, I think, he uh, he just got the ninth configuration from Amazon, and he watched it, and he said, do you have ninth configuration? I said, no, I don't. He said, I'm, I'm going to lend it to you, and you watch it, and then let's get together and talk about it. And uh, he he did, and I did, and we did. And, um, and I haven't seen it since, when the hell we made that? We made it in 78, March, April, May, and a touch of June. Not all of March, but mid-March to mid-June in uh, Budapest, Hungary, and Austria. Um, yeah, I think it was Austria. Or we went over and shot the, the ending stuff in the actual castle. And I watched the movie at Blatty's house. There was a screening in L.A., and uh, for some reason, I missed it. So Bob Loja and me, and I think that was it, two of us, got kidnapped out to, well, not kidnapped, but <laughs> had to go and uh, watch it at Blatty's house. And it was the most uncomfortable <laughs> Two hours or however long it is, it seemed like a six-hour movie to me. But honest to God, and uh, all the time I'm watching and I thought, mm, I don't know when I'm going to say when it's over. What am I going to say to him, to Blatty? And, um, and uh, you know, when it was over, I said, well, it's terrific, though. You did a really good job. It's nice. I, uh, I hope it does well. And it hadn't released yet. And it didn't do well. And, and the truth is, I, I don't. I thought it was a wonderful script, and it never got on the screen. I don't think. Didn't get off the page on the screen, and uh, and I think he should have hired a director who knew what the hell he was doing. That's that's my feeling. It just uh, it was insanity over there. It was crazy. In a way, I guess it was sort of like theater in that he thought if he if he took everybody over there for the whole time, he would get a really good ensemble effort and a hell of a movie. What he got was like 22 really angry guys who um, and drunk guys who were stuck in Budapest and 
not uh, very able to go anywhere else because of his uh, ridiculous scheduling. And they were, you know, some of them needed to be there the whole time, but many of us who would have worked maybe a week or two in the States, if it had been shot here, we were over there for the, you know, two and a half months. And it was just, it's crazy. I miss, I think he missed a lot of shots and close-ups. And I watched it, the Blu-ray that my uh, nephew uh, gave me to watch uh, just a week or so ago. And I, I thought, well, it is as I have always thought. It should have been way better. And it isn't. That's my feeling. So how was it working with William Peter Blatty as a first-time director versus working with Fred Decker as a first-time director? Oh, my God. Uh, there's no comparison. I thought Fred was fantastic, and I, uh, uh, I still think he is to this day. And I, I've always felt so terrible that he uh, uh, didn't have a way bigger career then he, uh, I thought he should have, you know, he should have had a wonderful career. And, and um, I don't think anybody ever knew what the hell to do with Night of the Creeps. And um, Monster Squad, I think, was even better than Night of the Creeps. And um, neither one of them released very well. You know, when we went down to the, we went to Austin, not all that, not, I don't remember how many years ago to do the, uh, extras and chat on the thing for the Blu-ray. And uh, they had the director cut screening of it at the Alamo Draft House, Alamo Draft House. We had a wonderful weekend. It was great fun. And then they come out with the artwork for the Blu-ray. And like Mike Felsher, I don't know if you know Mike, he does Red Shirt Productions. He's a guy out of uh, Detroit. Terrific guy. Does a lot of uh, Blu-ray stuff, and then I think we... Uh, I, I can't remember if he was in Austin or not when we uh, put all that stuff together. But anyway, they come out with the artwork for the Blu-ray, and he said they still don't have a goddamn clue how to sell this movie. And when we were, uh, we were all in Indianapolis just a week or a couple of weeks ago, and um, uh, all of us, for the first time, I think, since we uh, all did the movie, Jill and the kids, uh, me, Fred, Mike, everybody was there. And, and Fred said, uh, when we were having a and a he said, uh, anybody wearing the new uh, T-shirt from Night of the Creeps? And somebody stood up and it was the thrill me or something like that. And he said, no, not that one. And another guy stood up and he said, that one, that one. And it's a new uh, T-shirt put up by Freight Rags up in Rochester who makes a lot of T-shirts and stuff for horror movies. And he said, that should have been the cover on the original poster, uh, release, uh, everything. He said, that captures what the movie is about. Anyway, if you go on Fright Rags and you'll see it. Anyway, Fred Decker, yeah, I love him. I, uh, he's a, a wonderful writer and a wonderful director. 
and uh, I think Blatty, uh, well, Fred's still writing and doing, and I don't know about Blatty. I don't know if he is, but the two main things I remember about that was a fucking wonderful moment standing at the window turning to the room and saying, well, girls, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is your dates are here. And uh, some little girl in the back, I think the same I shot, maybe, I'm not sure, said, what's the bad news? They're dead. And then it cuts to the zombies coming up the front lawn. And I thought, what a wonderful line. And uh, stop. Oh, God. And then um, just before I got on the turntable for that shooting thing, yeah, it was a weird force perspective spinning table. It was really odd and uh, wonderful. And uh, anyway, he said, so um, here, take the, whatever it was, I can't even remember. He said, take your lighter and uh, hold it out, start spraying, and then light it. And I said, uh, is it this dangerous? <laughs> Couldn't somebody like me get hurt? <laughs> is it going to blow up? or No, nah, no, nah, it'll work. It'll be great. You'll see. <laughs> so we... Did that? That was a, that was another you know memorable moment from that sorority house. I loved doing that. I just loved working with Fred. I thought he was just he was just a young genius. I thought he was just great, and and uh, I I just I I can't even compare him and Blatty. Bill was a good guy, and he, he you know he tried, but man, he. He should have hired someone to direct the film. Maybe then he would have got the film he wrote on the screen because he uh, it didn't get there. I'm surprised you could even keep a straight face with some of that dialogue you had in Night of the Creeps. Oh man, no, that's it's because I'm a I'm a stage actor. I'm a theater actor. I am. Um, you, you you can't. You can't fuck around with that. It's a, it it's uh it's got to be dead real and earnest in, in in what you're doing because it is, and it it's gonna it's funny for the audience as it should be, but not to me as the guy. You come off as like the ultimate hard-boiled character after you know you've had your incident in the past when you are explaining yeah. to to Spanky how you took out the the killer. That scene on the couch. Well, I'm sitting on the couch and he's sitting there, and and it's a long kind of monologue story of yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, I love that scene, and I love the way Fred shot that scene. That he said, you know, just just tell the story, be very still, you know, you don't need to be animated and everything. It's painful. It's all in. It's been in your memory your, your whole life, and you it, you're telling it, maybe for the first time, to out loud to anyone. 
And then Fred just kept creeping the camera closer and closer and closer and closer. And I just, I mean, that's, that's why it's my favorite movie because for, for so many reasons and they all, um, they, they all pretty much all have to do with Fred and his uh, writing and directing. Yeah, the dialogue in that, I mean, it just feels like that must have been such a treat for you to have that kind of a character and that kind of dialogue to say. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, and I think even Fred would, uh, I think we've talked over the years and, and the few times we've seen each other and that, it, that he kind of wishes the pace had been just a little quicker of the whole movie, of the whole arc of it. That sometimes there, there are, uh, um, it's a little stretchy. But boy, oh my God, that a lot of that shit was in uh, the night configuration. I thought, oh Jesus, it was so, so odd, so weirdly. The night configuration was full of all these. The, incredibly bizarre characters, all of whom were military, all Marines, all Army, uh, well, no, Marines, I think, or Navy. Um, But you didn't really get to know them. You know, they they did their little set pieces, and he shot them as little set pieces, and and, uh, you never got to know them, you know? I've always uh, thought that um, a movie about the making of the movie of Night Configuration would be a much better movie than the Night Configuration. Because it was, man, it was an adventure. Two and a half months of nutsos in uh, Budapest. It sounds very chaotic. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. You've worked with a lot of first-time directors when I think about it, because I know that wasn't Tommy Lee Wallace was that was his first time with Halloween three as well. Oh yeah, yeah, man! I think I'm a jinx. I'm a jinx on all those guys. I cursed them or something. Tommy, that didn't do. God, people hated that when that first came out. But now people hail it as a classic. They do. They do, and Night of the Creeps is the same. The Night Configuration, not so much. <laughs> but the, the, uh, the other two, yeah, they do. And, uh, well, God. Fred said uh, at the Indianapolis Q&A, you know, he was talking about that T-shirt and the artwork and stuff. And, and uh, he, he said, you know, when you make a movie, you're, you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle. You hope it'll be good. You hope it'll work. But there's no way of knowing. Nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. But um, I, I do think it's a. I think Night of the Creeps is a classic, and I think Halloween Three is a is a, a classic in its own right. It certainly stands on its own as a good film. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm really glad that people are kind of going back and reappreciating this film because it, it it is well both Night of the Creeps and Halloween three, but with Halloween three, it really feels like the tide turned a few years ago where where now people can admit it's mm-hmm. actually a really good film. Yeah, yeah. What was that like working with Dan O'Hurley on that one? Well, it was nice. He he's another classic actor and classy actor. Um. It was good. We didn't have all that much to do together, but it was uh, it was nice uh, nice working with him. He's done some. He did some uh, good movies in his day. I just saw him recently on Failsafe. He was an old running of that with uh, yeah with Henry Fonda and uh, the kid from Dallas. Well, he was a kid then. Larry Hagman. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, Good stuff. I know that this movie didn't get a whole lot of appreciation when it came out, but I really enjoyed you in Drive Angry. Yeah, me too. Patrick Lucier. Oh, man. I know. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's weird. And uh, you, you saying that, I think, I, when I was a young actor, I used to worry about my performance and things and, I used to have the misguided uh, notion that somehow I was responsible for the success or failure of the play I was in or any of that stuff. And and then I came to realize later, no, it's not true. I'm partially responsible, but I'm only responsible for my own work in whatever I'm in. I'm not the director. I'm not the writer. I can only say the words that somebody wrote, and they sure let you know when you don't. You know, so it's um, I'm only responsible for for my uh, my own work. So I found myself thinking much less of the the actual job, not while I was doing in that. But way more on what a wonderful town Shreveport is, <laughs> and and the the area, and yeah, being down in Louisiana, shooting this movie, and talking to the people, and wandering around, and I came that, and uh, I guess um, uh, the night configuration at least did some of that for me a little bit, but um, part of the pain of that was that you never, a lot of people took the job thinking, well, shit, yeah, this is great. Okay. I'll be there and I'll go to Prague and I'll go to Moscow and I'll go to over to England and I'll go to Paris and uh, on my days off. Well, then, Blatty would put up the shooting schedule for tomorrow at midnight today so that you could never go anywhere much. And uh, that made a lot of people way nuts, including me. So anyway, Drive Angry, we, uh, Patrick and I had worked on um, My Bloody Valentine 3D and had a Wonderful time doing that here in my uh, neck of the woods, western Pennsylvania. So I went down there to uh, Shreveport, and one of the treats of being there 
was there was this uh, Barksdale Air Force Base right outside of Shreveport, which was on the news Sunday as part of a 60-minute segment of uh, they had the the big uh, B-52s there, and they anyway they had this air show, and they have B-52s that are stationed there, and elsewhere, and they brought in B-1 bombers, and they carried these uh, nuclear bombs and, you know, on on missiles, cruise missiles and stuff, or however they're set up. But it was so great, that air show. And uh, the movie was, I thought, it was great fun to work on. I thought we did it. That Nick did a good job shooting. I didn't have that much to do in it, but I had a wonderful time down there to make it. And again, I don't know. It's like Patrick gave me this. I'll tell you a little story. He had this um, in the script as it's written, close up on printing comes on the screen. And it says, Dumbledore dies on page 529, something like that. And then it starts moving and getting bigger and fills the screen. It comes closer and the camera goes up to my face and it's me walking into this uh, dead scene, murder scene at the motel or whatever. So I thought, oh, my God, that's so fucking great. (laughs) That's so great. And and at the same time, I thought he's not really going to do that, though. They're not gonna. They're not gonna do that. So I had the kid at Fright Rags make me two blue sweatshirts that said that in uh, old Gothic kind of script. It, it was real bright and readable and real. And uh, I took them with me down there. And the costume lady said, uh, "Come on in, Tom. We'll try on this uh, shirt you're gonna wear at the beginning." And I said, "Why? Well, here I." I brought one. I had two. I said, um, this is it, right? And I held it up in front of me, and she said, oh, uh, uh, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> so she went, she got, she came back in with Patrick, and he he saw it, and he went, oh, God, oh, I so wanted you to do that. I, but I, he said, we would have to pay Warner Brothers so much money for you to wear that with that saying on it. Universal, I think. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we, it would cost more than we're paying Nick to do the movie. We so you can't. And, uh, but I had I had a uh, uh, great line. Well, I made it a great line because I didn't. He was supposed to be such an old uh, Oklahoma Highway Patrol guy, old Cap is what he was called, my character name. And uh, he doesn't wear a uniform because he doesn't feel like it, and he just wears whatever he wants. Which and and then I thought, well, Oklahoma, Jimmy Garner was Oklahoma. And uh, he used to we used to kid around on the set 
of uh, Rockford Files, and I would talk in a Pittsburgh accent, and he would talk in an Oklahoma accent, and he, he would say, he would say something like, "Well, you know, Tom, if you're really tired, you should go home, take a hot char for banar, and then you'll feel a lot better." And I thought. I'm going to do that in this. I want to do that kind of accent. So I'm at the roadblock, and I said to all the guys, aim for their tars. And you know what I mean when I say aim for their tars. I thought it was terrific, and I know uh, Patrick was delighted with it. Uh, yet again, uh, another film that did not do well. I know Patrick and I talked about uh, Halloween three along the Rob Zombie storyline that he was going to make, but um, Drive Angry uh, did so poorly in uh, box office that they they wouldn't give him him the money to do uh, the Halloween three he wanted to do. And he already had the script in that. There you are. So we've talked long enough, don't you think? Yeah, I was going to ask you one more thing. I was going to ask you if you're, are you still working? Are you still doing uh, theater work? Yeah, occasionally. But I do I do a one-man show here in Pittsburgh called The Chief, um, based on Art Rooney, the original founder, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's been dead 20 years, I guess, and uh, I never knew him as an adult, and I did the play uh, just me on stage for an hour and a half. It's a great play, terrific show, and we did it for 10 years, but we're not doing it this year. We didn't do it last year. I don't know if we'll do it again. I don't own it. The Pittsburgh Public Theater guys, uh, the writers own it, and they, the guy at the public does it occasionally, and maybe he'll do it again, maybe he won't. I don't know. And for the last eight years, I did uh, played Scrooge in a musical Christmas Carol at the Byam downtown, eleven hundred seat theater, great, great production. But this year they made me an offer I could refuse, and I did. So I'm not doing it this year. Theater is hard work, and. I would much rather do uh, film TV. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Atkins. This was a real pleasure talking with you. It was my pleasure, Mike. I enjoyed talking with you myself. How did you decide to get into show business? Well, I always loved the movies. My dad was a huge film buff, and I remember as a kid, you know, sitting in the in the den and him watching old war movies from the 40s, old black and white war pictures, and and pointing out the uh, the character actors. He would go, "Hey, there's there's William Bendix, you know, and there's Frank Phelan, you know. He went on to play Dobie Gillis's dad in the in the Dobie Gillis show, and." So it sort of opened a door to this fantastic world, which I don't know that kids today have any 
concept of, which was that there's this vast, you know, history of movies that aren't all in, uh, you know, digital IMAX um, that they can watch on their phones. They're, they're just, you know, you turn on the TV and you can find these old movies. And my dad was always watching them. And so I was not a particularly athletic kid. I was not a particularly popular kid. I wasn't unpopular. I had my friends, but, but there was a, this fantasy world of the movies that I really took to very, at a very young age. At some point or another, I realized that's kind of what I wanted to do with my life. And that's, uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Did you initially set out to be more of a writer, a director, or everything? I, I guess I always had a facility for, for reading and writing, but I was never a reader the way that, say, my, my, my friend Shane Black is. I mean, he's a, he is a reader. I wasn't so much. I had my favorite writers. I had, you know, Richard Matheson and William Goldman and like that. But I always saw things visually and I always wanted to be a director and writing was always a means to an end. So, so I never really wanted to be a writer and, uh, I kind of still don't. If I, if I could find, if I could clone myself and have that guy write my scripts along with other much better writers and I'd be very happy to never write again. But, uh, I just sort of fell into it because, uh, that's, uh, that's the way the, uh, the stream flowed. It's so funny to hear you say that because the scripts of yours that I've read are so good, not to blow smoke up your ass, but they're so good and so polished that that's not your first love is just kind of a surprise to me. Once I decided that I wanted to get into the movie business and, and be a director, the first thing I did out of, uh, I, I was making a lot of films in, in high school, both in, in Super 8 film and shooting video. And, you know, this was sort of before, long before the digital re- revolution. So I was actually filming, I was doing stop motion and I was editing myself with, with actual celluloid. And I did all that stuff and I wanted to make a career out of it. I applied to film schools. And at that time, being from California, I'm from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So the best film schools around were down here in, in Los Angeles. So I applied to UCLA and I applied to USC for some strange reason, because my grades were not great. I managed to get into both schools, but they didn't, the film schools wouldn't uh, accept me. So I had an option, which is I can go to UCLA or USC as a, uh, with a different major and then just keep pursuing my uh, interest in, in film. And that's ultimately what I did. So I, I chose to be an English major. And I think that's really how how the writing sort of became front and center to lead me to directing. By the way, back in those days when when Francis Ford Coppola and this, I, I'm, I'm younger than them, obviously, but but Francis Coppola and Paul Schrader and and, and generations before, um, you know, um, John Huston and, uh, and guys like that, they started as writers and then became directors. And there was a time when you could do that. I'm not sure you can do that now. I think now you have to do a, if you do a proof of concept reel, or even better, if you're a special effects guy, you're much more likely to get a directing gig than if you're a writer. But anyway, that's how I broke in. When did you and Shane Black first meet? We met in college at UCLA. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in your life that you sort of take for granted and then only realize later how amazing it was. I mean, the, the early eighties, the, 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 from the, from about 1975 to about 1985, 
there were classic movies being released every month, which does not happen anymore. You know, the last movie that I really loved probably came out 10 years ago. But in those days, we sort of took it for granted. E.T. and Star Trek II and The Thing and Aliens and all these movies are coming out and we're saying, you know, wow, that's great. And we just thought that that would always happen. And you know what? It doesn't. And so the same thing with The Friends You Make. And I was at UCLA in uh, the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And I wasn't in the film school, but I made friends who were in the film school. And my, my best friend from high school was at USC, and he was in the cinema department over there. So I would help I would help my friends make their films, and I would make my own films. And in a weird way, it was actually better than film school, because those relationships turned out to be the entree into the business, serving as that entree better than if I had a degree. I met, um, I met Shane and we became friends. I met Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson who shortly thereafter wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and, and Ed went on to write Men in Black and, and uh, now you've seen me and all these other great films and David Silverman who was one of the architects of The Simpsons and has been on, on The Simpsons and directed the movie ever since. He was one of my best friends in, in, in college and coming out of college. And there was this whole group, Tim Robbins was there, just come from New York, I think, and was starting the Actors Gang. So there were all these amazing talents who were just kind of the guys that I drank beers with and didn't realize until a couple of years later, holy shit, this is, this is kind of the new Hollywood. We're, we're kind of at the at ground zero. And, and so that became really cool. Because we uh, we said we're gonna we're gonna run this business and and we didn't know any better you know the the, uh, the naivete of youth you, you think you can you can rule the world and, and you know there was no stopping us and it was it was a really great wonderful time I was saying before we kind of started the interview proper it's always tough with writers to know kind of what came first you know because there's the whole selling cycle and when things get written versus when they get made and revised and all these kind of things. Can you give me kind of like uh, what kind of stuff were you working on maybe before Night of the Creeps actually was a go? One of the things that I tell young writers, because everybody's got an idea and everybody who I meet at screenings or conventions or wherever I am in public, you know, they've all got an idea and, you know, how do I, how do I sell this and how do I break in like you did? And, and one of the things that I really try to impress upon upon young writers and, and directors and, uh, and and I would say actors more than anyone is, you know, failure is a part of this of this process that you have to be prepared for. And if you're not, you should probably, uh, you know, check your admissions at the door. So I wrote a really terrible first screenplay that I literally don't think anybody's read. I never showed it to anybody. I wrote it. It was probably 90 something pages, but it was just bad. And I put it in a drawer and I might still have it somewhere in storage, but I had enough wisdom to know that it wasn't an entree to anything. And that it was just kind of, I mean, the analogy I have is, is, is pipes and plumbing. You know, if, if you haven't, if you turn on a faucet that hasn't been turned on in a long time or hasn't been turned on at all, there's a lot of gunk in the pipes that need to come out. And that's what I think your first screenplays are. So I wrote another one after that, which was equally terrible. And then I wrote a third one, which also was bad. 
and so basically those those three first three scripts nobody saw and then the fourth one i thought maybe there was something to it and uh that's how i got an agent with that script in fact at solomon who i mentioned earlier he had met an agent who he had not signed with but when i was looking for somebody i said i have a script it's it's the first one that i don't think is completely terrible who should I show it to? And he said, oh, I met this agent. He's really great. And that, that is a guy named David Greenblatt, who's my manager to this very day. And without him, I would have no career. So, but again, it took, it took three at-bats before, I guess the fourth was really where, where I actually said, I'm going I'm to try and hit it. I'm going to try and hit the ball this time. And, uh, and that was how my career started with a, a spec screenplay that I, I optioned to Fox. And then later, many years later, Ten years later, I sold to Paramount, so they own it. But it was never made. So that's the other thing you have to know about being a writer is you you can write a lot of scripts and even make a, a living, and even make a good living, and never have anything actually made. Well, that's what I'm always curious about, because even with Night of the Creeps, you know, seeing references to Monster Squad, I'm like, well, how far along was Monster Squad when Night of the Creeps was in production? You're talking about a scene in the movie where... Uh, where one of our heroes uh, meets his demise and there's a, there's graffiti on the wall that says go monster squad. Uh, I've always been a huge James Bond fan. And as a, as a, as a kid, when I saw my early, the, the early bonds where they were smart enough to know that they had a franchise, this was long before franchises were really a thing. And I really took my hat to, to, to Cubby Brockman and, and Harry Saltzman because they said, okay, well, we're doing well with this. Let's keep it going. Let's say at the end of the movie what the next movie is going to be. So if you look at the first batch of James Bond films, the old ones from the 60s, they all end with the title of the next one. James Bond will be back in. And and I always got a little tingle of excitement at the end of a Bond film because like, oh my God, not only is there going to be another one, but they know what it is. They know what they're doing. So I always liked that notion of kind of the Easter egg even before it became the, the thing in, in, in the Marvel universe. So I had made the deal already towards the end of Night of the Creeps, towards the end of the shoot, we had the script written, Shane and I had written script and we had interest. And, and I just sort of, again, the naivety of youth, I just assumed it would be my next film. And so I put a little tribute to it in Night of the Creeps. And sure enough, that was my next film. I was, I was shooting within, within a year. I made those two movies back to back. Where does House fit into all of this, and and how much of that did you were you responsible for? I have to say very little, except for the idea, except for the the, the, the basic premise was mine, and it was something that again my buddies we called ourselves the Paddle Guys, and it was kind of an unofficial fraternity of of movie nerds, and all of us, you know, David Stone was doing animation, and I wanted to be a director, and. And uh, Shane started out wanting to be an actor, and then he wanted to be a writer. And so we all we all wanted to make movies in some form or another. And we had this idea that we would make these little short films. We we were all enamored of the of the the, the Spielberg John Landis Twilight Zone movie, which I still have great fondness for, despite the the tragedy that surrounds it. It's a, it's a wonderful movie and has a great Jerry Goldsmith score. And I, we, we, that kind of reinvigorated us as far as the anthology idea of like, let's all make our own chapter. We'll all do our own little Twilight Zone. So my Twilight Zone was about a, a Vietnam vet who uh, is struggling. He uh, inherits a house. And uh, and my idea was, and I wanted to direct the movie. I was like, this is my first feature. Because you always want to do something that's doable. 
So my idea was, okay, I have one location, and my parents at that time had a Victorian house in Marin County, California, which I grew up in. So I said, okay, I have my set. Now I just need one actor. And at the beginning of the movie, he'll go into the house. And at the end of the movie, he'll come out of the house. And in between, it's just the scariest shit I can come up with for 85 minutes. And I said, now I'll call it house. So it was very high concept. It was a very simple concept. But I never sat down and actually wrote it. I wrote it as a short, as a, as a little twilight zone that I was going to make. But I ended up not making that because this script that I, that I mentioned, the, the, the science fiction script that got me my agent, uh, was read by um, Steve Miner, who was a wonderful guy and had directed the second and third Friday the 13th. I think he was a producer on the very first one that Sean Cunningham directed. And Steve, uh, Steve got, gave me my first job in Hollywood, which was to write um, a Godzilla movie. He had the rights to the Toho character before Roland Emmerich and before... Um, Gareth, and before before the kind of resurgence of Godzilla, he was the first guy to go, let's do an American Godzilla movie. Ultimately, it was too expensive, but that was my first job, was writing a Godzilla movie. And Steve was a sort of mentor to me. And I had never written this house movie. My college roommate was, was Ethan Wiley. He was a wonderful guy, very funny guy. And he was like, when are you going to write that house movie? Sounds great. Guy goes in the house and it's scary and what's gonna happen and you know great when are you gonna write it? And I said, well, I'm busy. I'm writing this Godzilla thing and I've got this idea for a piece of horror movies called Creeps and it's gonna be real scary and we'll have romance and, and he goes, yeah, but what about house? And finally, I just said, well, if you clearly want to write it, just go write the script and we'll, we'll take it from there. You'll be the writer. So Ethan wrote the, the screenplay based on the on the basic ideas that I had given him, the, the Vietnam vet and the scary house and the, this and the that. And he wrote the script and he gave it to me. And, and I'm on record as saying it was very different as, from what I had conceived. Uh, and because uh, the idea that I had was, I, I wanted to do a really scary, sort of Roman Polanski, black and white, uh, really dark, kind of much more 60s verite, black and white approach. And, uh, and his movie is kind of Mad Magazine, you know, it's very goofy. And, uh, but, but ultimately, I think it's why the movie's successful. I think it's why people like it, because its humor invites you in. And we were, we were in the 80s, and the 80s had a different sensibility than the 60s and 70s. So I said, and I was also busy. It's like I, I, I no longer, this was no longer the most important thing in my career now because I was writing other things. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me show this to Steve Miner because he'll tell us what to do with it. And so, and so I gave the script to Steve Miner and he said, this is great, I want to direct it. And I went, okay. And then he went to Sean Cunningham, who was his producer, and Sean said, I love it, it's great, I'll get the money. And they were shooting within, you know, six months. So that was my first story credit. That was, that was kind of my first movie. Now, I'm sure that whole process of this is great, let me direct it, let me finance it, all this kind of stuff, that's exactly how Night of the Creeps probably played out. It was so simple to actually get that film made. Is that correct? Ultimately, yes. But this is a really important point. That, that was an anomaly. But th those movies coming together so quickly, and Monster Spot as well, which came together quickly, that is such an anomaly compared to the way that the world is in general and the, the movie world is in general. And certainly now where everything is like pulling teeth and you have 
you know, in those days you had cowboys, you had executives and, and agents and producers who were cowboys who just said, let's do it. Let's go. Let's shoot it. Let's go. And you don't have that really anymore. Everything is bureaucracy and 15 development executives and 16 agents. And so it was really being in the right place at the right time. Um, so yeah, uh, house was in production and I wrote what became night of the creeps very quickly. I wrote it and I think the first draft was about three weeks. And one of the things that I did with it, I was very, very influenced by, um, William Goldman, who's, who's still my favorite writer. And one of the things that he brought to screenwriting, apart from the fact that he's brilliant and is an Oscar winner and has written some classics, all the president's men and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid and magic and marathon man. I mean, he's a wonderful, great writer, but he also, when he started writing, would look at screenplays and just found them deadly dull. And when I started looking at screenplays in college, I also found them deadly dull. So it was like, how can you write a screenplay that people will actually enjoy reading? That isn't, you know, interior, library, gay, a woman crests the steps looking for the biography section. It's just the most boring. I mean, it's not as boring as some novels I've read, but the idea of having fun with the description where you say, you know, and Goldman is really good at this. There's slug lines, which says, you know, a room. The, 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 the fattest man you've ever seen enters. He falls on his ass. And, and you know, just have fun. Have it like you're, t- like you're telling a story to, to your friend at dinner. And that's what Goldman brought to it. And that's what I put into Night of the Creeps. It's just full of this kind of hyperbolic um, cell. It's, it's like it's, it's, it's just made to be read almost less than it's made to be turned into a movie. Actually, had a character called "Girl Whose Breasts Confirm the Existence of God," and then one of the characters sees her and he says, "Hey, look, what? There's a girl whose breasts confirm the existence of God." So it it, it was and it would be fairly juvenile, clearly, uh, if you couldn't, if, if that wasn't clear. But there, but there was that kind of youthful enthusiasm that I brought to that script, and I think it really stood it in good stead because these these crusty old agents and producers would read it and go, there's something here. This kid's got moxie. There's something going on here. And I think that had a lot to do with setting up Night of the Creeps. Was there ever any doubt that you would be the director of it? Well, no, there wasn't because that was the deal. I said to my agent, okay, I've, I've written a couple of things for other people. They haven't been made. I'm really only in Hollywood because I want to make films. So I'm attached to this. So if anybody wants to make it, I'm the director. So that was what he would tell people before they read it. And, you know, that's happened. It's happened in the past. I mean, it's the, it's the Sylvester Stallone stratagem, which, uh, is kind of famous, uh, apocryphal, but, 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 but true, which is that he, so it's not apocryphal. It's actually true. He said, you know, I've read this script. It's Rocky. I'm not doing as well as an actor as I want to. So I've written my own role and I'm playing the role. And that was, that was it. If you want the script, then, you have to take you had to take him as the actor. And in this case, you had to take me as the director. But luckily, um, I had a piece of film that I had done with my friends that had a certain polish to it, and I could show that to them. And I guess um, 
you know, I didn't blow the meet the first meetings. So, um, and everybody's always looking for the next big thing. So that's the other thing you have to remember in Hollywood is that everybody is flavor of the week at some point. And, uh, I wrote that script and happened to be flavor of the week that week. So, um, I got lucky. What was your experience directing it? I mean, it's interesting that it's kind of almost three movies, maybe more than that, kind of all in one. It must have been interesting to try to adopt the, the or try to change your style from sci-fi to 50s to 80s and have all of these different styles going on all at once. Yeah, and in retrospect, it's it's a pretty ambitious um, um, thing to tr- even try to do. But I got to be honest, Mike, if I had thought about it, I would have just um, stumbled at the starting gate. I wouldn't have ever been able to do it. It was really kind of just this, this alchemy. I just, I kind of, there was not a formula to it. It was just, I followed my, my gut. And what's interesting is watching the movie now, because I've had problems with it for many years and only in the last sort of 10 years have I begun to appreciate things in it that I realize now we're not at all conscious. The, the tone of, of a movie, I think, is vitally important, and it's something that a lot of people don't think about now. You know, you go see something like Deadpool. I don't know that writers think about that so much as they, as they should. Um, and in the case of Night of the Creeps, it was very, it, it, it was almost campy on the page. But I knew in shooting it that I didn't want it to be a campy movie. I wanted to believe in these characters. I wanted to believe even as, as crazy as the, as the world that I, that I, that I created and like as crazy as the stuff that happens in it, I wanted to be invested in them emotionally. And what that means is they can, they can, they can say jokes and they can have humor, but you have to believe that they're people on some level or it just all falls apart. Um, and I've always felt that very strongly about genre movies in particular. So to be honest, I never thought about the juggling act that the movie is. I just sort of uh, approached it from a character standpoint and from a from a visual standpoint and kind of knew subconsciously what it was supposed to be without ever consciously acknowledging it. So if people had asked me at the time, what's the tone of this? I probably wouldn't have been able to answer the question but I knew it when I saw it and I knew it when I heard it. So it was, it was very much a product of, of just my, my instincts. You said you had some problems or, or had some problems with the film. What are some of those? Well, I had um, no idea what I was doing for one thing. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in the movie that's just, you know, a beginner. It just, you know, you can see the scenes, you can see, um, the struggle to to try and do something that I was not um, educated in doing. In, in, in my estimation, looking back on it now, I think that a lot of the problems with the film are due to that, or due to my inexperience. But a lot of the stuff that really works is also due to my inexperience because I didn't know what I couldn't do. I didn't know what wasn't allowable. And so I'm really pleased with that stuff. I had a really nerdy question for you. How did you accomplish the actual slug effect? How are those guys moving around so quickly? The the creeps um, are either um, remote control cars uh, with batteries in them. A lot of them we pulled on um, fishing line, a monofilament. 
And there were, at, at that time, there were actual toys that kind of squiggled. So we would put the squiggly toys inside the armature. Those would be the armature for the rubber creeps outside. And we, we pulled them on lines. Um, it's all stuff that was actually built by David Miller and his effects guys. And, um, you know, this was pre-CGI. So it's all actual rubber and goo and and fishing line and, uh, you know, spitting spin polish. After writing all these lines, and I'm sure you went through many, many drafts of the screenplay and everything, when you finally get these actors and you start to see them say your lines on screen, what was that like for you? For all of its stylization and wise-assness, wise I think it plays pretty well. I think it's, it's actable in the sense that you can say the lines, even if you're not a method actor and you have to know kind of what your subtext is. I think it had a kind of a, an, a, an easy breezy quality to it so that it was easy to play. You know, I can't emphasize how important casting is, you know, with somebody like Tom Atkins, who I had never envisioned in the part of, of Detective Cameron. But when he came in and he did the lines, I just knew he was the guy. It was kind of odd and, and wonderful. I just, well, that's the guy. Uh, at that point, I sort of handed the, the baton to him. And I don't remember directing Tom very much. I actually don't remember directing any of the actors very much because I think, again, the naivety of youth, I was just following my gut. And I cast them in a way that they just sort of became those those characters. And it's funny because we all had a reunion in Indianapolis uh, a few weeks ago. And and, and we actually said this in a, in a question and answer um, session in a, in a big ballroom with fans of the movie that it's I had managed to cobble together this this group and they just they really hit it off they really kind of were the characters that I had written and that's that's you know Martin Scorsese says that I mean, he says it's eighty percent that's that's most of the battle once you've done that you don't really worry about how the lines are said because the actor you've found essentially is that character so you can just trust him to do it. I spoke to Tom Atkins this afternoon, and I have to tell you, he cannot say enough good things about you. Hmm, that's very sweet. Still says that that is his favorite film to have been in. So, and he's been in a lot. <laughs> that's true. He's acted with Frank Sinatra. He's worked for John Carpenter. I mean, yeah, he's worked for Dick Donner. Well, I think it was. Again, it's. Uh, I, I said something at this. Q&A in Indianapolis that I think uh, resonated with the actors, which is, you know, making a movie is trying to catch lightning in a bottle. And the guys who do it, you know, the Kurosawas and the Kubricks and the Spielbergs and the Scorsese, the guys who do it, who, who have a body of work that where they've done it a lot of times, they're just better at knowing where the lightning is going to strike and where to put the bottle. Um, I, you know, was a 26-year-old kid who just loved movies. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to belittle whatever talent I, I may have had at that time, but some of it is just, isn't it? Some of it is just getting, being in the right place at the right time. And, and, you know, Tom, he only told me this recently was going through a divorce at that time. There's a tremendous melancholy to that character that if you, if you look at the, the script, if you look at the pages, it seems very campy and funny. But I don't think he or I looked at it that way because 
And I'm a huge Monty Python fan, and I think one of the reasons that they're so brilliant is they write it funny and then they sort of play it straight. I mean, they make faces and they do funny voices, but the key to comedy is play it straight. If it's funny on the page, then then the, the more straight you play it, the more it's going to work. And with this movie, there's a drama. I mean, there's a there's a lot of drama going on between these characters, and we played all that as though it were real. And I think that's why the humor works. And with Tom, he was going through something personally at that time. That melancholy informs everything that he does and says. So even though he's even though what he's he's saying these wisecracks and he's saying these these bon mots and these sort of memorable uh, uh, lines, they're informed by genuine emotion. And I think that's if the movie works. I think that's one of the main reasons. And I I also. Not to blow smoke up Tom's ass, but I think he's the best thing in the movie by far. I was saying when we were recording the episode that I could just sit and watch his character for two hours or more. You know, like those that every outtake <laughs> that he's in, it's like, yeah, I'll take. Do you have another outtake reel? I'll take another one of those, please. I would love to have yep. some more Tom Atkins in my life. Yeah, well, it's just I think, and I think that's one of the reasons that he has such fondness for the role is that I built this sandbox. And then I said, now I got to find the perfect kid to play in the sandbox. And I found him. And once you've got that, there's no going back. I mean, you can't top it. It just, it was a perfect blend of, of character and an actor. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's too bad that there's more for him to do, but, but I'm very pleased that the arc of that character has, is, is, is fulfilled in that movie. And, you know, I would love to figure out something to do with him again. When you were talking about the ending and restoring the ending for the director's cut, was there anything else that you restored when you were doing that or just the end? In the director's cut, that's the only change. We did remaster it, so it looks much better than it did before. Um, Oddly, this is a director nerd thing, there were a couple of little pieces of Foley sound that actually weren't in the movie, just they slipped by us or we nobody noticed or whatever it is, so I added those. So the sound was tweaked a little bit, but I'm a big fan of not of not changing the soundtrack when you do when you remaster for for Blu-ray and DVD because uh, my favorite movie is is Jaws, and years ago there was a remaster where they had, they had done a 5.1 Dolby and and I popped it in and I said okay I'm gonna, it's, it's it's that time of year you know every year I have to watch my favorite movie and as soon as it started it wasn't Jaws I could just tell it was just they had remixed it. I was like, well, this isn't the movie. They've remixed. So, so ever since then, I've been very cautious about changing the sound uh, from what people are used to. But with Night of the Creeps, the ending of the original theatrical cut was was a compromise that I was never happy with. So the opportunity to put it back the way it was supposed to be, to me, that was that was the whole uh, the whole ball game right there. I've seen two endings now, one with the dog, one with the spaceship. But I want to say that there was a third ending, which was in the screenplay, which was kind of where you ended at the the cemetery sign. Is that true, or am I just imagining things? I think you might be imagining things. I always, I always wanted to bring the story full circle. I'm a big fan of thematic circularity. You start where you, you end where you start. So I thought, so I always thought it would be incredibly cool that if we start on this alien spacecraft and this 
this experiment gets loose and causes all this havoc that at the end of the movie, the aliens come back looking for the experiment. So that was always my intention. And when we showed it to the studio, we had a disastrous sneak preview of the movie. Uh, and part of the disaster was that last shot, the last effect shot, because the, the shot wasn't finished. And there's this kind of bromide in, in, in Hollywood, you know, the, the audience knows, you know, they're, they're all uh, our preview audience. They're all Hollywood insiders. They know what we're going for. It doesn't have to be, we don't have to finish the effect shot. They'll know what we're going for. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. The more that your preview is the final movie, the better. And they, even the studio, they just didn't, they didn't understand. I said, well, you read the script, the spaceship's coming back. And they're like, but yeah, but there's a light stand there. Say, well, we're going to map that out because the effect shot's not finished. But once it's, yeah, but how come there's a light? Well, because the effect shot's not finished. See, when it's finished, then you, and they said, no, it doesn't work at all. It doesn't work. So that's why we did the the, the zombie dog appearing at the last minute, which I just always hated because it, it it just ruined everything that comes before. It's it's like it's like Alien Three. You have these. You know, which kills Newt and, and 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 Hicks at the at the beginning of the movie. It's like like these people have spent eighty five minutes trying to defeat this this menace, and then at the end it gets them. I just I, I always thought that was cheap and horrible, and I was thrilled that with director's cut we got to fix it. How on earth did they decide to market the film? Well, it's a very strange movie. I mean, I hear a lot from from fans and people saying, you know, your movies, they they weren't marketed properly. Well, if you have something that's very clear, if it's it's Kevin Costner as the bodyguard, you know, or it's Dwayne Johnson and and Kevin Hart in, in you know, Central Intelligence, and they both got guns, and you know they're going to be funny. Everybody knows what it is. A movie like Night of the Creeps, or even Monster Squad to that, to some extent, they're very strange uh, kind of amalgamations in movies. They're not really something you can pigeonhole. So I don't blame, it's my long-winded way of saying, I don't blame the studios for how they marketed those two movies. I just think those two movies came out kind of before their time, or maybe after their time. They, they just weren't in their time. That's my, that's my assessment of it. So from 1986, or probably a few years before that, all the way up to 1993, you were super busy. Just It's like movie after movie, screenplay after screenplay, working on Tales from the Crypt, and then working on RoboCop. And I'm curious, how did you get the RoboCop gig? Uh, well, let me, amend, let me uh, um, correct you just slightly. You know, you have to remember, although thankfully my first two new pictures have found, found their audience now, many years later, 30 years later now, at the time they came out, they were not a blip on the radar. And it took many years of cable and, you know, VHS rented at the local blockbuster and all that stuff before people started to take Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad to heart. So after Monster Squad came out, um, I mean, I could get arrested, but it wasn't easy. And uh, so I was really, really gratified that that Robert Zemeckis and Joel Silver came to me, and Dick Donner came to me and said, "You know, do you want to do you want to write the very first Tales from the Crypt? It's the show we're doing for HBO." And so um, I had I had good friends and good, and I had mentors at that time, so that helped me through. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't the same. I'd made two movies back to back, and now I'm, you know, writing. Hour, uh, half hour long 
TV episodes, and I directed one of those, but I definitely was not where I wanted to be. What happened was I was approached by a, a dear friend of mine, Michelle Manning, who had a production at Orion, who had inherited the RoboCop franchise. And she came to me initially asking if Shane and I would write the third one because they were in production on the second one and the studio very much wanted to do another one. And Shane was busy. He was doing, I think at that time, he may have started the long kiss goodnight. Definitely. He had done um, the last boy scout. So he, Shane was at, at, at that pivotal point of sort of going off in his direction. And I will, I was always the more genre guy. So science fiction and fantasy and horror also always appealed you know, much more to me. And, and I love the Verhoeven movie. I think it's a great movie. It, it just sort of fell into place, I think, because I was, I was interested in doing it. I was a big Frank Miller fan. He had written a script that they wanted to throw out. And I said, no way, don't throw it out yet. Let me, let me tinker with it. I think there's some cool stuff in here. The Japanese and the ninjas and all that stuff is cooler than anybody thinks it is. I think eventually Michelle or Mark Platt, somebody just, you know, called my agent and said, you know, would Fred direct this for us? I think because they liked Monster Squad and they liked the fact that the guy who made that movie could maybe take a turn with RoboCop and steer it towards a younger audience without losing too much of its edge. Because good, bad, or indifferent, what Monster Squad has that very few films of its type have is it's got a little bit of an edge. It's it's a hard PG-13 to a degree, but it's also sort of young people friendly and family friendly. And I think that's what they wanted to do with RoboCop. So that's really what got me that gig. It was, it was, a, it was a suicide mission, by the way, but that's why they, I think they made that decision. I was I was curious as far as how that decision was made to make it more family friendly, just because the first one is so well, it's so gory, it's so it, it's wonderfully dark and everything. So just to turn that into a, a well, and by the way, weird. by the way, coherently so. I mean, Verhoeven was a European making fun of America in a in a wonderful way. I mean, it's a satire. It's an action movie and it's a science fiction movie and it's a comic book, but it's a very dark adult comic book and it comes from a European sense of satirical sensibility. Um, I think the second movie, uh, uh, Urban Kirshner's movie, which Frank also wrote, I think it's it's deeply flawed because there was nobody stewarding it who understood that tone that Verhoeven had exactly. So they said, well, I guess let's put in more satire and let's put in some more, you know, violence and let's put in some more off color jokes. And it was just kind of this hell's a poppin'. But I find it tonally just really all over the place, that movie. My entry had its own problems, but I think in the final analysis, it, it's the most heartfelt of the movie. It's the, it's the most kind of hard on its sleeve of the three of them. And the, and the fact of the matter is that doesn't really have any place in the in the universe that Verhoeven created. So that's kind of where we went wrong. I, I just it, it was it was a feathered as Joel Silver would call it. It was a feathered fish. But yeah, they were making toys and they were making cartoons. And I think that part of them just said, "Hey, here's a franchise for kids." Like, have you guys seen these movies? <laughs> You know, Miguel Ferrer doing coke with, you know, hookers and saying, you know, bitches leave. I, I don't know if you guys are actually watching this movie or if you're dreaming. Was there much studio interference as the movie was being made or afterwards? Or was it just pretty much, here's here's your marching orders, Fred. Do what we want you to do with this. 
I've been on record and I will continue to go on record. Anything wrong with that movie is completely my fault because they absolutely gave me as much rope as 25 million bucks would buy. And I did the movie that at that time I felt like I wanted to do and that was the right one to do. And nobody ever said boo to their credit. I mean, God bless them. Um, Pat Crowley, the producer and Shane Bartleman and Mark Platt, who was the executive and everybody, they just, they were really, really supportive. And I think part of the reason was they were distracted because the studio was going bankrupt. Had the studio not been going bankrupt, they probably would have paid a little bit more attention. But I have to take, uh, you know, anything that's good about the movie uh, is my wonderful cast and my great composer and my great production designer and all the people that I work with and me. But if it's bad, I mean, that's me. You know, I was I was a huge fan of Frank Miller and I loved uh, Ronan and I loved all the stuff he was doing in comics. And I love this notion of, you know, the Japanese corporation coming in and hiring actual ninjas and the code of Bushido and all that stuff. I wish I had taken more time with the script. I wish I had hired another writer to help me sort of see the forest for the trees, because I think it's a well-made movie. I think where it falls apart is in the script and in uh, some of the, um, the production areas. Because you have to remember, Jurassic Park came out, T2 came out. You can't compete on that level unless you have you know, that, unless you have that level of, um, of technological brilliance and, and that was all CGI. That was the birth of, um, of CG effects. We had already finished the movie when those movies came out, we were on the shelf for a year. So by the time the movie was released, it really didn't stand a chance unless it had something to offer that no other movie had, which let's face it, it doesn't. I'm always curious when it comes to writing partnerships and, how they kind of operate. Now, when you and Shane Black work together and you've worked together for so many years, what's kind of the trade-off? How do you guys work together to, to form one coherent story? I think we have very similar sensibilities. So our first in- instincts are going to be at the same end of the field, if that makes sense. If, if two writers who never worked together or have different sensibilities, they may come at it from two completely conflicting or different positions, which may actually end up producing something interesting. But Shane and I were both raised on, on pulp comic books and, and uh, tough guy fiction and James Bond and Batman and the Marvel universe and all that stuff informed us as we were going up. When we come in to tell a story, let's put it this way. If you put him in a room and say, give me five ideas for, you know, insert uh, intellectual property here, and then you do the same with me, a few of the ideas are going to be the same ideas. We just think alike that way. The only difference is that with with Monster Squad, it was my idea and my um, brainchild. So he was sort of working for me. And with, for instance, The Predator, which we're doing now, um, he's a director, and you know he was involved in the first film. And, uh, it, it is a part of the legacy of, of that franchise and that character, so I'm really kind of working for him. So that's what I'll, I'll, I'll always say. You know, he'll go, what's your idea? And I'll go, well, here's my idea, but it's your movie. That's what he did with me in The Monster Squad. So as long as you have a tiebreaker, as long as one of us is the one who says, here's what's... Here's ultimately the decision, 
and it makes it very easy. I know I can't really ask you anything about the Predator. I would love to, but I'm sure that you've been sworn to secrecy and, you know, had to pinky swear and everything. So just know that I'm very interested in it, and I'm very excited to see what you guys have come up with. Well, I appreciate that. We, um, I will say this. When we came into it, we were of one mind almost instantly about sort of what we wanted to do. Uh, those are the things I can't tell you in terms of what we wanted to do, but it wasn't like I brought a, a bunch of ideas and he brought a bunch of ideas and then we threw them in a hat and said, well, which ones do we want? We, we really kind of, I'd go, what if, and then he'd finish the sentence and then he'd say, what if, and I'd finish the sentence. And that's been the process kind of all the way through. So in some ways it's been, I think, um, my favorite of our collaborations, mostly because I don't have to be the arbiter at the end of the day. I know that ultimately it's going to be his decision. Um, but to answer your question, we've, we're taking some chances. We are expanding the mythology that is known, which if you, if you know the Predator movies and you know the mythology, it's, it's a fairly narrow, not extremely rich. It's, it's not that it's one note, but it's, it really does follow one path. And one of the things that I brought to it was I have some problems with the first movie. I think it's, it's iconic and, and, uh, uh, and the score that Mel Silvestri score is amazing. And there's these great actors and these characters and everybody knows that movie, but I have some issues with it from a science fiction perspective that I wanted to address in this movie. So what we're doing is we're taking the bare bones of the predator and expanding it in ways that we think um, are really cool and rich and open the door to a larger mythology the same way that, you know, Star Wars or any other um, big mythology has to open the door and see what else is out there in the universe. But we do so knowing that there are going to be some fans out there who are going to get their uh, panties in a joint because they're going to say, hey, that breaks the rules. But as far as as, as far as I'm concerned, Fox has, has very kindly given us this opportunity to expand the rules. And so that's what we're doing. Well, hey, thank you so much for all your time tonight. This was a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. We are back, and we were talking about Night of the Creeps. So I kept bringing up The Hidden when we were talking about this movie earlier. And actually, uh, when we talked about The Hidden the first time, uh, one of my co-hosts kept bringing up uh, – Eric uh, Peterson kept bringing up all the comparisons between The Hidden and Night of the Creeps. And it was funny, the synchronicity, you know, the, the flamethrower, all this kind of stuff in there. But I think actually – Night of the Creeps is kind of what The Hidden 2 should have been, where The Hidden 2 had multiple, multiple space slugs that were infecting people. I think that it would have been a much better movie had they paid more attention and had they lifted more from Night of the Creeps. I think it would have been a, a better film. 
and I, I appreciate though too that the films are very different insofar as the space slugs in the hidden and the hidden two really have well they don't necessarily have an agenda but it's not just as far as it's not just a, a, a sexual urge it's not just here i am to infect you i'm going to lay my eggs and then your head's going to pop open and we're off to the races with another set you know these guys they had more of a an urge to listen to concrete blonde and and, and drive fast cars so definitely some differences and i think some very important differences so i think that that night of the creeps and the hidden really kind of stand on their own but I was curious, as far as while you guys were watching this, were there any other movies that kind of stood out for you as far as being maybe a good double feature with Night of the Creeps? Well, yes, they came from within. It's clearly the perfect double feature with Night of the Creeps. I mean, They Came From Within is a far darker movie and a far more downbeat movie. But if you want to talk about sex slugs, I, you can't get a better double bill than that. God, that's brilliant. I, I love the, see, I didn't think of either one of those films when I was watching it, but the minute Mike, you said the hidden and the minute Maitland, you said they came from within, I was like, Oh, of course. Um, for me, I guess actually you mentioned this, um, before Mike returned the living dead probably for me would have been the closest. Um, but I think a lot of that for me was like the JC character, because he's, you know, it's almost like James Karen, you know, because in Return, you know, you love his character and he's hilarious. But then, you know, it gets dark because he's infected and he ends up basically putting himself, you know, in the crematorium. And that scene, I always thought that scene was actually really beautifully kind of heavy because you here's this character you really, you really like and you really don't want him to go. But you know what his fate's going to be and he knows and just to have that moral decision and then the whole thing with jc and, and the tape which that was so beautifully done like him listening to that tape was actually to me really just really disturbing and you're just like oh my god i just thought it was actually a very ballsy a very ballsy move and a move that you know like everything else we've talked about it just worked beautifully but yeah the hidden and they come from within is those i would totally go see that double bill whole <laughs> I would see that triple bill as well. I wonder what was it in the 70s and 80s that really fostered a, an environment in which movies in which people were invaded by things were something that we saw fairly regularly. And and when I say invaded, I don't just mean that they uh, inhabited people's minds, but they literally invaded their bodies. It seems to me that there has to have been something very much in the air in the late 70s and the early 80s that made that thematically an important thing in horror movies. Do you think it was uh, Fear of AIDS, which is the obvious answer? Uh, do you think it was that people were afraid of losing themselves in various ways, losing themselves in drugs, losing themselves in social movements? losing themselves in the rock and roll scene. I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about people being invaded is not necessarily a real invasion, but it has that in the title is Invasion of the Body Snatchers and this whole idea of losing yourself uh, and losing control of your body and coming back as something else. And for me, the, the 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that seemed to, to speak to me as far as the whole idea of the, the lost culture, you know, the whole idea of 
trying to find yourself as far as you know new spiritualism new ageism asked these kind of things and not necessarily having a, a grasp on yourself and and your own spirituality there's there's moments in the film um i want to say the uh Veronica Cartwright character, you know, uh, where she seems to be the one who's the most spiritual as far as that goes and really trying to, you know, seems like she would be wearing like crystals, those kind of things. So I don't know if it, it goes back as far as that and, and, and that kind of a feel to it, but it feels like people were striving for something and, and looking for something to hold on to. And it feels like if you couldn't hold on to something tangible, then something might try to get a hold of you uh, otherwise. I don't know if that makes much sense. So it sounds like that Bowie song, You Better Hang On To Yourself, right? God, that's a fantastic question. I feel like we could do a whole episode, like, in going, because there's, I think there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of reasons. I mean, the thing that comes to my mind, at least with films with the 70s and 80s, is maybe perhaps, maybe kind of the death of the countercultural dream. Because, you know, there was all this, all these like cultural changes and social changes in the 60s. And a lot of people got excited and they would, you know, hang, you know, you could hang your hat on something and, and have this, this ideal. But the reality is idealism, you know, like anything else is a bit trickier. And utopia is, you know, is always going to be an impossible thing to strive towards because of our own nature. And so maybe, you know, maybe the, the, the whole sense of the losing of yourself because you, you know, everything you've held on to, whether it was maybe a conservative social role or perhaps an activist role or whatever, you know, you know, there's there's holes in it. There's nothing like completely terra firma you can ever like hang your identity on except yourself. And that can be kind of a scary thing for a lot of people. I mean, I may be just talking out of my ass, too, but just I don't know. That's the first thing that came to my mind. I think you're absolutely right there. And it's bringing me back to they came from within where the ideal is Starliner Terrace, this this um, building complex on an island that somehow seems to be promising in uh, They Came From Within, David Cronenberg's They Came From Within, this ideal society that uh, people could look at and, and move into, and that then turns into this um, this self-contained pressure cooker of, uh, of, of man-made sex parasites. So, yeah, I think you're definitely onto something there. When it comes to 86, by that time, of course, you know, I, I love to just make comparisons to, you know, what Reagan ended up doing to the country and this whole idea of this, you know, the, the fraternity brothers as these killer zombies. I mean, it doesn't get much more Reagan youth to me than that. You know, but I mean, that's that's the easy way out when it comes to that kind of discussion. Yeah, oh, I'm but sorry. I, and these guys are the guys for whom the term bro holes. <laughs> a, a word I use all the freaking time because I swear to God, you know, I live on the upper, I, I live in South Harlem, which you wouldn't think was the bro hole capital of the world. But I go to local restaurants, I go to local bars, and there are these guys with their Brooklyn beards and their bro hole attitudes. And I swear I look at them and I wish that I had a sap in my, in my pocket that I could follow them into an alley and beat their heads in with because I, <laughs> I just... Oh my God. I feel, I feel like I just had an epiphany with hearing the term bro hole. That is the, <laughs> that descriptor 
is so perfect because my god i i I, I am from a college town that is just completely uh, infested with bro holes. I mean, it's it's total barbecue wings and beers and butt rock and um and bro holes. My God, that's I, there, somebody needs to write a horror movie called Bro Holes. It, take that term and spread it because it really needs to be used. Yeah, that's my first time hearing that one, and I'm I'm very excited to use that now in conversation. I. I have to say, I believe that I coined the term bro holes. So take it and spread it everywhere. <laughs> oh my God. We'll do Mike. This is, this episode is very, you know, we need to note this, that, you know, Maitland coined bro holes, the origin of bro hole as a term. We will, we can attach the projection booth to it. Now we can have a little notation on urban dictionary. Exactly. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family. Well... Rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. The Shining, a masterpiece of modern horror. Directed by Stanley Kubrick. Starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Rated R. Opens Friday, June 13. Check newspapers for local listings. That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of The Shining, I hope. Maybe. As Shocktober continues. Shocktober will be continuing. I'm just not sure if the next episode is going to be The Shining or not. I'm still trying to work out with my co-hosts if that's going to happen. So we will do the episode eventually. I'm just not sure if it'll be next week. So regardless, we're going to be doing a ton of bonus episodes this month, including a discussion of Doomed, Pin, Killer Party, and The Thing. Talk about terror coming from within, definitely with The Thing. So before I go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Maitland. Heather, what is keeping you busy these days? My piece on Nico B's experimental silent short film, Sin, uh, just went live over at Diabolique. Uh, and some of you uh, may be familiar with Nico B's work. He did um, a collaboration with Roz Williams, who was in Christian Death, um, called Pig. He also did a film called Betty Page, Dark Angel. And Sin is... Um, kind of very much you know it's very different from those it's very stylized but very challenging and uh it's great um also i did this perfect this ties into stan ridgeway i also did a tribute to um one of the most underrated post-punk bands ever wall of voodoo uh as the uh waning part of the american gothic series over at diabolique um in addition to that i did an article about barbara payton and uh, her uh, pseudo-memoir, I Am Not Ashamed, uh, over at my own site, Mondo Heather. And so for the curious, you can go to either diabolicmagazine.com or mondoheather.com for those and other sundries. And how about you, Maitland? I am continuing to uh, republish uh, vintage gay erotic novels. And in November, I will be doing um, a Miskatonic University presentation, a, a class. And those, I, I'm sure most people listening to this podcast would know, are arranged by uh, Kayla Janice. 
and I will be talking about my work attempting to bring these uh, forgotten novels back into the public eye. So that, that's that's what I'm up to. That is fantastic. I look forward to hearing the, the story on that. Now, is that up in Toronto? Uh, no, that's going to be here in New York. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, at the uh, Museum of Morbid Anatomy in Brooklyn, which is great regardless of whether or not I'm there. It's a fabulous place. And uh, I, I think it's going to be good fun. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find links to everybody's stuff. I'll even link over to the Miskatonic Institute, and you can find out more about them if you don't happen to know about them. So hopefully uh, hearing uh, Kayla Janice just recently on the show will kind of have turned you on to that. You can also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. You can also go over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show at patreon.com slash booth, And, you know, donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late, which seems to be happening more and more every single time with these episodes. So I appreciate the donations. Keep the faith and please rate and review the show. Every rating and review helps the projection booth take over the world, just like space slugs. Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.